and it, yeah, it was good. It was the right amount, but two at once, and I was like, oh, that's crazy that it hits you that much. Because I thought I was sensitive. I yeah. can like I can manage like three or four, um, but yeah, just the one is interesting. I don't feel anything if I only take one. I get I get like a little a little giddy, mm-hmm. you know, slight euphoria, mm-hmm. and I feel warm. I feel the warm flush. Warm. And I get energy, you know, I get definitely get energy from one and I'm like, I'm really good there. Puts you in a good mood. Yeah, That's what me, I feel like. Let me try yeah. a little bit more and then I'll, yeah, oh, okay. You know, maybe not. Does so. it compare to anything else you've taken? No, it's really in it. I mean, I think that's the beauty thing. of it, that yeah. it's, it's in a league of its own, you know, and that's, that's what makes it special. And the, also the fact that just like with anything that I've talked about before with you, you know, like you talk about something like LSD. The LSD experience on 10 micrograms is way different than 100, which is way different than 1,000. Mm. You know, like the, the, that scale is so wide ranging. And the same can be said for Kratom. Mm. I, I find all of it interesting because it can, you know, there's, sometimes there's negative stigma, you know, to all these different things. Um, but then there's other things that are kind of socially acceptable, you know, like alcohol or something. And really in the grand scheme of things, um, even even steroids or something like that all these things are really doing is maybe just taking you to a spot that you otherwise can't really get to on your own and i mean everything everything that people do we're we're always trying to alter our consciousness whether we're aware of it or not you think about this fucking caffeine right here Mm -hmm. like coffee is the number one drug in the world don't judge me alcohol (laughs) might be second you know to that so like there's there's socially acceptable drugs but nobody's going to say caffeine's a drug like yeah, it alters your consciousness. Well, even you if you to, get up and go for a walk, right? You're trying to change your mood. You're yeah, trying to get exactly. a little exercise you're in. You're doing breath work? Like, that's a state change, right? right? Brian McKenzie, these guys talk about that, that state change. So you can have tools that are net positive, that leave you more whole than when you started, mm-hmm. and have very little side effects, like Kratom. Or you can have a tool that's going to run you into the fucking ground. <laughs> so it's really <laughs> what you're choosing to put in your body and what yeah. you're choosing to do to alter that state that really makes a difference. You've been on both sides of the spectrum when it comes to that kind of stuff, right? Oh, yeah. Been I've on done the spectrum of, of abusing. Pl- plenty plenty right? of the bad drugs. Yeah. yeah. Many, many nights I watched the sunrise from uh, coke and alcohol and ecstasy. And um, thankfully never, you know, as we talked about before the show started, never got hooked on pain pills because of my, my body would just eject. Right. You know, I, would, I would throw up violently and get really nauseated from it. So um, did any of the other things become a problem i mean i'd imagine they're, they're pills hard to... xanax valium for sure became a problem um for sure because i had a lot of anxiety and i had a lot of shit to work through and i was just leaning on pills to make me feel better and the beauty of those pills is they fucking work you know i had no anxiety i felt all the euphoria i was high as fuck and i was getting a boatload for my doctor he was great give me whatever i wanted is that during fighting or during no no, no. Football? this was this was during football i had a naturopathic doctor in, in arizona who went to jail not surprisingly <laughs> and so you know i'd get 60 xanax the two milligrams any bars that are four squares big time 60 in a prescription with five refills 60 valium 10 milligram the big ones with five refills and i'd sell half of them to the football team or trade them for ecstasy and keep the other half for myself and and pretty consistently you know and those would be the ways that i'd that i'd sleep and uh or just feel good throughout the day when shit was hitting the fan and you know when that runs out what's left is the root cause of all that anxiety. Mm. What's left is all the fucking pain and the shit that you haven't faced. Right. And so we do that with everything, whether that's TV shopping, uh, constantly inundating ourselves with social media or anything that we use as a distraction to take us away from really being able to sit and, and have comfort within our own skin. And that was a huge issue for me. And really finding that as we talked about before through fighting 
breath work, visualization, meditation, all these things happen from fighting. And then plant medicines really reinstilling that like, hey, you got to have a meditation practice. That's That was a consistent message with, the, with ayahuasca. I got to meditate. And this isn't, I've said this a million times before, but I think it's worth saying. It's like in the matrix, the Oracle tells you, whatever the Oracle tells you, that's for you and you alone. Yeah. It's not for anyone else. So a lot of people beat the drum. We need to use less paper. We need to stop eating meat. Like it's no, it's, that's the message for you. Right? So this message was for me to meditate and to do yoga, to be mobile. And, um, something I've been working on for the last year is, is that if I feel stiff physically, that makes me stiff in my mind. That makes me rigid mm. in the way that I respond to the world and anything that's external. I have a rigidity and a seriousness to it. Whereas if I can flow and move better, I'm actually more open internally as well. That makes a lot of sense. You see somebody, um, uh, maybe uh, like a military, uh, you know, sergeant or something like that, standing real straight and real stiff. A lot of times they have, uh, you know, very like stiff rules, right? They got might be a hard ass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the guy might be a hard ass, right? So it actually makes that actually um, that actually makes a lot of sense. How how did you eventually, you know, work your way, you know, through and past some of these things? Well, I think you know that's 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 another misconception is that you take something like ayahuasca or a heroic dose of mushrooms, then it fixes stuff. It really doesn't, and it might point something out for you to fix, but it takes doing the work in between. And really, that's where the work starts is after the ceremony, in between the ceremonies, and um, you know, it's it's the implementation of whatever the download is. It's it's actually making it uh, embodying whatever that tool is to make it a day to day practice. And if I do that, then I'm doing the work. Right. If I don't do that and I refuse and I cycle back into the things that were leading me to my issues in the first place, you know, then I'm not facing the challenge. I'm not showing up. So if I can show up and do the work, uh, that's when I'll actually level up and start to implement things that actually move the needle as far as uh, living a better life and, and having more quality of life. You call these like ceremonies. So like what exactly do you do? Or is it a group of you guys that do it? Is there someone Get that's a couple not rabbits on it? and sacrifice <laughs> a goat or something? There's blood involved. Um, <laughs> no, you know, ayahuasca is typically what they would call an ayahuasca ceremony if done, you know, in the traditional sense. Um, we were just out at Soltara in Costa Rica, which is a beautiful place. Um, very well facilitated. And they fly in Shipibo Shaman from Peru. And uh you know, the medicine is strong, but really it's, it's their integration, which is so critical. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of people doing ceremonies or ayahuasca work stateside. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I've said in the past, you've got white belts teaching all the way to black belts. So you, oftentimes you don't know what you're getting, you know, and my first several ceremonies were not with black belts. So I think, you know, I saw a lot of first timers at Soltara and I just had total gratitude because I was like, man, I would have been so much better off if I had these tools going into this and learning how to work with the medicine or learning how to work with that tool better and more appropriately, and then how to integrate that. Right. So they have a whole workbook. They do a 12 week online course after the fact to keep you on, on your toes, like keep you doing the work that's necessary so that you can take whatever you download in the ceremony and actually put it into practice in real life and make real change. Cause it's not, I mean, habits are hard to break. You know, you read a book like The Power of Habit, and it's like you can never really remove a habit with the way the brain works, but you can replace it. You can shift it. You know, if you're used to, I think the example they use in that book, it's a great book, but the example they use is if, if you're an overworked mom who doesn't always get dinner ready in time and you got to pick up your kids and you're frazzled getting home, you might take those screaming kids who are starving to McDonald's one night a week. 
And pretty soon that becomes a night, a weekly thing, like every Tuesday night, for example. Then maybe that becomes twice a week. Then maybe that becomes three days a week. And you're leaning pretty heavily on shit food for your kids mm. and yourself. You might not be able to, to change that completely. You might not get your shit together and have food ready seven nights a week. But you could change that to a different thing. Like maybe you take them to Chipotle or someplace that has grass-fed beef and it's not as damaging. Or, you know, like I go to, your, I go to Hop Dotties. Your brother turned me on to Hop Dotties. <coughs> Place is great. It's amazing. Matt Schweitzer, my homie, he's, he's one of the meat managers for them. They have grass-fed Kobe beef. They fucking cook their fries in avocado oil. Like it's, it's insane. Like the quality of food is insane. So it's like, if I need fast food, I can order that to go or we can sit down and it's a treat for my son. It's a treat for myself and I'm not putting garbage in his body. So finding a replacement for these things that we lean on, I think that's really where we, where we can make significant change in our life for the better. Yeah. I think, uh, got a tendency to let your, let your guard down, you know, like you're fighting every day, you're putting up a good fight and you're, you're working hard at it. And then you're like, ah, you know, I could use a cheat meal. And then a cheat meal turns into a cheat day, which turns into a cheat weekend, which could turn into a whole cheat week. <laughs> or uh, maybe you're on schedule and you're, you're doing some uh, cardiovascular training for a while. And then you kind of lose sight of, of that because you let it go for one day. Or maybe you're training early in the morning and you let that go. And it's like, that's why some of the people that we meet on this podcast and some of the people you've had on your own podcast, when you talk to them, you're like, when's the last time you had a cheat meal? And they're like, seven years ago. And you're like, no, like, I'm like, when's the last time you had like ice cream or pizza? They're like, yeah, seven years ago. It's because they just, they get to a point where they're like, it ain't worth it anymore. Not going to let my guard down for nothing because maybe they kind of view it as like that could lead to a downward spiral. And maybe the result they're getting makes them feel better than uh, the opposite of that and throwing garbage. Yeah. I'd rather, I'd rather feel good than, than eat good, you know, with, with in quote, in air quotes for Mm -hmm. those that are just listening, like that idea and Rogan talks about this and Aubrey talks about this, like people live for mouth pleasure, but you can still eat really good fucking food that tastes great. And something I like from the guys at quest is cheat clean. Like if I want to have a fucking pizza, it'll be gluten free. Or maybe once a year when I'm in LA, I'll go to Vito's cause it's my favorite pizza on earth. And I'll throw caution in the wind and eat the right. gluten loaded pizza. But that's a one-time deal. And I don't have access to that in Austin. Right. <laughs> and even if I did, I probably would eat there less. You know, but we're going to LA and, and we're going to eat at Vito's, you know, <laughs> in a few days from now. So I think having that and then also knowing that I'm not the type of person that falls off the wagon. You know, if I've been keto for three months and I eat one carb day or one carb meal, I'm not going to be like, oh shit, you know, Usually it's right all gone to it. waste. You know, now I'm doomed. Like, no, I'm, I'm fine to intermittent fast for 16 hours the next day and, and eat clean from there on. But um, I think people generally because we live in a world of convenience they get lazy with prep you know like i really enjoy making delicious grass-fed uh cheeseburgers you know with maybe some some beef bacon or something like that to throw on top and homemade guac and we wrap it in chard or swiss you know swiss chard or collard greens and we eat that it actually fucking tastes really good too i mean it tastes better right it, I mean, and it tastes better because i fucking made it it yeah. tastes better because i put in the work and i provide that meal for my family and they appreciate that. There's love put into that. You know, I think that the salad that we had at your house. I, I talk about it all the time, dude. The salad that Tasha <laughs> made just, us. Yeah, just, just she like makes a different ma- uh, carrots and shit in there. It was, yeah, uh, but they call that Mark Sisson calls that a big ass salad, right? <laughs> and then she calls that the man salad. 
Uh, it's funny because Jesse Burdick wouldn't eat it. Either. <laughs> That's rabbit food to Burdick. So he was like, I'm not fucking. I was like, oh, no, it's great. It's great. And I'm like, sure. Come on, Jesse. I know you fucking eat more than that. I Look think there yourself. was like potatoes and well, I think there was uh, there may be chicken, right? There, I don't like I said, like there was uh, there was like a carrot. But I, I was like, what? I, I picked it up and I showed Tasha. And I'm like, what? what is this? This tastes amazing. And she's like, um, that that's a carrot. I was like. I've never seen a purple carrot before, but this is amazing. Yeah, we'll, we'll cook up, you know, we'll cook up cruciferous and different things like that and toss it in. Aaron Alexander actually taught me that because he makes ridiculous salads, but we'll cook up broccolini and uh, sometimes mm. rainbow baby carrots and we'll, mm. we'll shave them down and just toss that all in there. And you have a nice warm salad that has got some girth to it. There's girth. Yeah. yeah. Right? You want some substance. You yeah. Know? We all, we all had like a big old like Tupperware size bowl of it. It's like, hell yeah, this is great. Mm-hmm. You we'll got Simpsons Primal good. Kitchen. Hell of a uh, time getting down to the floor too. Cause we, that was tough. no chairs in this no. household for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I've been told it's a little bit better to sit on the floor, but I haven't kept everyone in mind. Those that are injured and those that are jacked and tanned maybe can't sit at the table. So with Burdick, we just sat on the couch to eat. That, that was cool too. You know, it was it was, it was home style. It was casual dining. Yeah, and then uh, it's great. Kyle just bust out the uh, trampoline to start jumping on it as he's having a conversation with us. Oh yeah, the rebounder. Yeah, yeah. Tony Robbins rebounder. Yeah, That's I was like, dude, one. if I did that, I'd probably would, like twisted an ankle or something trying to have a conversation. You're just like, no, it's normal. You got to do it enough. But yeah. that's the cool thing. I think that, like, going back to convenience, put enough shit in your house that's good for you, and it's always there. Like, you're going to use it. You know, I spent 500 bucks on that trampoline. It's not a cheap thing, for me at least. I'm going to use the damn thing. Yeah, I have, right? like, a hypervolt right on my right, mm. right next to my couch. I use the thing all the time. I get my shoulders, my elbows, and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, because it's there, right? right? We have 100 square feet of MMA mats that are two-inch thick in our living room. And how often do we stretch and do yoga and wrestle? Every fucking day, because it's right there. It's yeah. accessible. You know, that's something I tell people that are like, oh, the gym's too far, this and that. It's like, get a fucking kettlebell. If that kettlebell's there, you can do anything with it. Right. You can use just for mobility. You're injured? Cool. Do some mobility. Mm-hmm. Just warm up the body. Get it's loose. A kettlebell, like 50 bucks or something? I mean, it's not. Yeah. yeah if you're much. buying it in store, it doesn't. I, I My favorite kettlebell is a 20 kilo, it's 44 pounds. Mm hmm. And I can do halos with it. I can do windmills. I can do bootstrap squats. I can open up my body. If I want to grind, I can do a 10-minute snatch test with it. I can do whatever. It's fine. Like, it, it covers all the bases. And I can travel with it, too. And <laughs> yeah. throw it in the trunk and go. You know, like, there, there's, you really just, you need to think of things that, and I do, I'm speaking for myself again, not we. I like to think of things for me that make the things that move the bar in life a little easier to access. And if I have that, then I know I can do it. Like I don't, I never liked buying a ton of ice for an ice bath, but now that I have a standalone chest freezer full of water, that's, uh, you know, it's got some food grade hydrogen peroxide and Epsom salt in it. And I only have to change the water out every three months. I also made changing that water out easier by buying a little, uh, above ground redneck water pump to pump it out. So every three months I change the water. I always have an ice bath ready for me. I get in the ice bath more because I have access to it because it's right in my garage, right? So I think thinking that way has really helped me level up because of the fact that I just have access to all these things that matter. How do you do that with food? Well, I think it, you read any book like Wired to Eat or Keto Reset Diet or any of these books. I mean, the first thing they tell you is to clean out your pantry. Don't have a bunch of garbage on site because good diets are hard enough to stick to without having something tempting you right there. But it is, you know, you do like treats, you know? Mm-hmm. And like I was talking about with you before when we were doing video, like I don't want to deprive my son of good stuff, 
there's a company called Mammoth, and I have no affiliation with them. There's a company called Mammoth out in Austin. They make keto ice cream, and it's with grass-fed butter, free-range egg yolk. Like it's high-quality ingredients. So and there's and it's low carb. So like when I want to have that, it's really good fat. It's good protein, and I give it to my son. And if he wants to eat that for dinner some nights, I'll let him. Like it's all good stuff, man. You want to put well, that in your body, you're the good. The other thing is, so like you're talking about like two different things here. Number one, you're talking about trying to create convenience for yourself, and and in this case, the viewers could be trying to create that convenience as well. Uh, but additionally, you know, you're lo- you're lowering the, kind of the barrier of entry into these things. You have a trampoline in front of your TV, so boom, you bounce around the trampoline. No got TV the, anymore, but yeah, you got the mats. And even when you did have TV, all it was on was like wildlife stuff. I remember that. That's true. Um, and then, and, but the op- on the opposite side of the spectrum here, you're talking about almost like the things that are a treat making them harder because how often do you have that ice cream in the freezer like probably not fully stocked on it all the time right no so, it's 10 bucks a pop too so there is yeah, a barrier to entry yeah, you know, yeah, like, you know. that, it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of nice too like hey bear like dude you only got like that little bucket of it so how about we eat half tonight you can have half tomorrow night too mm-hmm. like yeah just, you know or and it's easy like if i'm gonna bribe them let me bribe them with something good right like you know what? You got to finish all your chicken if you want to have some ice cream tonight. And then knowing the ice cream isn't hurting him, right? Somebody, I forget who I learned this from, but somebody was, I think it was Paul Check. Your reward should not hurt your gains. It shouldn't hurt whatever you're working towards, right? So if you reward yourself with losing 20 pounds, it shouldn't be to eat like shit and gain five of it back. It should be a massage or a trip to the ocean or whatever thing that's going to fill you maybe your cup a little further. Overeat for one meal, but with maybe healthy food. Yeah, yeah, right, cheat like, clean, cheat yeah. clean. Yeah, you want to overeat, eat, do it right. Or if you have a gluten intolerance, get against the grain pizza. You know, do something that's going to be grain free, and then you have less of an issue rebounding from that. How'd you find out you had a gluten intolerance anyway? Because you've mentioned that a lot. Yeah, uh, for me, I did an elimination diet, and the thing is, there's there's an issue with food tests because if you have leaky gut syndrome, everything will show up as an allergen because your body's not fully able to break food down and it's getting through the cracks in your gut wall. Um, a lot of people argue with the science behind that, but I, I would lean towards, you know, everyone I respect in health and wellness knows that's a factor. Guys like Dr. Dr. Michael Ruscio, uh, Dr. Joe McCullough, a lot of people in this space that I really value what they're talking about. You can heal that with products like Restore, with bone broth, with fasting. Uh, a lot of things will help heal that. And then also cutting out, eliminate, finding out what is an intolerance and eliminating that from the diet. Um, so I went off gluten and dairy and anything problem. It was basically paleo for about a month. And when I circled back to dairy, not a big issue. I think milk fucked me up, but, um, you know, heavy cream, not that big of an issue. Cheese, no issue at all. When I added in any type of bread product or pasta, I farted like crazy and I couldn't breathe. Like my nose would literally seal up and I could feel the inflammation happen quickly. And so that it was, it became very real. It was like I had a weight vest on my whole life. And obviously I grew up poor. Mac and cheese with kielbasa was the special treat of the week. We God, could afford kielbasa, that. you know, uh, a lot of canned beans, you know, a lot of uh, hamburger helper yeah. and a lot of cereal. So, I mean, I was loaded up every, every meal had wheat in it, you know, and I just never knew the wiser until I cut it out. And then doing that, it was like, all right, now I know at least if I'm going to do that, it comes at a cost. So it might be once or twice a year that I actually knowingly eat gluten. Uh, outside of that, you know, if I want to eat pizza, I can do the gluten-free. If so I it's not like you break out in hives or anything. It's nothing crazy noticeable, no, but it just like, doesn't yeah, make like you feel some, great. Some people have some real issues. You know, you have celiac, so, something yeah. like that. Like even, uh, Rob Wolf, you know, he says he 
you better be by a bathroom if he eats gluten. He's going to shit himself, right? So, like, <laughs> thankfully, I don't have that, you know, but I get enough complaints from my wife when I fart. So, <laughs> and gluten, gluten gives me some fucking serious firepower. So, try to keep it to a minimum. <laughs> yeah. How about uh, vegetables or anything like that? Is it fair game for you on vegetables? Is none of them really tend to bother you, or what's your deal with none that? None of them really do. If I get too much into the cruciferous, then uh, then that'll be an issue, you know? Hurt but, your um, stomach, yeah. Yeah, and I have to cook my cruciferous. I'm not a guy that's going to eat raw kale or, or, you know, raw. Uh, Is that like Brussels raw, sprouts and stuff? Yeah, too? yeah. Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower. Three days a week that'll be in, but then I, I make sure that I'm I'm not having that on the other three days. You know, it'll be. What do you think about some of the science that's been coming out, or some of the information about you know, I, you know, I find some of this to be just kind of ridiculous, and I, I think it ends up fighting the wrong fight. But um, you really have a great knowledge and great understanding of nutrition. And, um, you know, what do you think about, you know, some people are kind of saying that vegetables might be negative and even fruit might be negative and, uh, they're pointing like oxalates and things like that. What's some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's no doubt. I agree with that. I mean, how much I, I factor that into my diet, I would say it's less now. I spent about six months eating, um, uh, you know, based on the plant paradox, Dr. Stephen Gundry has a great book on that. If you don't do well eating certain vegetables, it's worth reading. And worth trying. Um, I think a fair amount of people don't have an issue with that stuff, but you know, plants don't want to be eaten. Like nature's designed to survive, and it will create things um, that within itself to prevent. It's a natural herbicide or pesticide, so mm. it doesn't get eaten by other animals or insects. That's pretty well understood now. Uh, not everyone knows that, but I mean, it, it is something that I would consider valid information. Um, with that, I don't know that I need to be on a low oxalate diet or a low FODMAP diet. If people have autoimmune issues, you know, I've, I've, again, going back to Dr. Michael Ruscio, he has a great book. I think it's called Healthy Gut, Healthy You. Mm. And he taught, he gives a systematic approach to really go about healing the gut and then being able to return to those foods. Cause the goal isn't to say like, I can never fucking eat that again. The goal is like, no, I, I don't want to have a limited life. Yeah. That's I'm what so, Andy Galpin talks about yeah. that. Like, Hey, you know, be careful on these elimination diets. Cause you could have worked your way out of that food maybe forever. Mm. It might be hard to get it back in. You're going to have to figure out ways of, you know, putting it back in in small dosages, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think the goal for anybody trying to lose weight is how can I figure out a way to get more gluten into my diet? It's like, no, but I mean, yeah, if you don't have an intolerance, a little sourdough bread at dinner is not going to kill you. Right. You know what I'm saying? But I mean, the vast majority of people like piling heaps of fettuccine Alfredo <laughs> with fucking loaves of bread next to them, like yeah, you're going to have trouble losing weight if yeah. you're eating that stuff. And then there's the, the glyphosate issue, right? Like we think of how food has changed through big agriculture and, and our, our chemical industry. There's no doubt that is a factor. And it's a factor for people's health that might even be worse than the gluten itself. Mm. A lot of this stuff comes from gene genetically modified food. And the argument, as Rob Wolf puts it, is not against the GMOs. It's that every GMO is just laden with glyphosate, mm. right? So that's, that's the real issue is that we have... I think 80,000 chemicals have been added is that in the last like hundred years. Pesticides or something? Or what's that from? Yeah, it's a pesticide herbicide and it's, it's in Roundup. You know, I mean, it's in a lot of pet food and stuff. I've heard people say it's in like 95% of pet food. If it's and, not organic food, it's right. in your food. Right, Let me right. put it that way. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. I mean, it doesn't even have to be genetically modified. It's being used on pretty mm -hmm. much anything that's not organic. So that's, that's a factor. It doesn't mean that I eat organic 100% of the time. If I'm out to eat, I'm not like, oh, is this uh, chicken grass-fed and free-range? And No, I mean, I'll, I'll, eat, I'll eat when I'm out yeah. and then not fucking worry about it. But for the majority of time when I'm buying food, I, I am paying attention to that. 
I like what you said about, you know, the, the kind of fettuccine Alfredo, like that's, that's my fight. Like that's the thing that I try to, I try to teach and I try to coach people on is like, let's kind of have that be the fight. Let's have, let's get some stuff that's agreeable. That's easy to say. Like, I know there's some people will say, oh, well, it's not really bad. It's just what you make of it. Well, yeah, I understand the idea, but for someone who's 350 pounds, they kind of need to know what's quote unquote good and what's quote unquote bad. Sugar isn't necessarily bad and sugar doesn't necessarily make you fat and gluten might not even necessarily be bad and might not necessarily make you fat. But a lot of times the things that have gluten in them, the things that have sugar in them, they just taste really good and we tend to overeat them, right? Yeah. And that's, I think that's where Rob really hits the nail on the head and wired to eat is like some of the smartest people on earth. These food scientists are, are actually designing foods in a lab. They're going to hit every part of the palate. And it is, you know, like he used the example of Pringles, one pop, you can't stop. People can't stop eating it for a reason. It's designed to be that good. Oh, I can stop after I finish these next couple of. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it just comes down to that. And I think it's, you look at things like Whole30 or vertical diet, right? It's very simple. Like you're eating real whole foods and even grains are in that, like white rice is in that. That's a non-problematic grain. There's many cultures on this fucking planet that live there's you know they're in blue zones and they live on white rice and they're fine to eat it some people don't do well with it i did the the carb test from rubble's book for a while the the blood sugar test and i found white rice spikes spikes my blood sugar greater than anything else so if i'm gonna eat it i had better been fasted all day and i should have a workout prior and then i'm okay to eat it uh and and even with with other food i would imagine yeah chicken and rice still still gonna get still gonna jack me through the roof you know like pre-diabetic levels blood sugar Wow. Whereas I can have a plate of yams or sweet potatoes and there's no problem. Hmm. So, you know, doing a little homework is probably more than most people are willing to do. But if you're going with very basic stuff that that's not processed, um, it's hard to eat a plate of yams that you don't have honey and butter and sea salt on. Right. If you're keeping it basic to what that whatever that is, whether it's a vegetable or a grain. It's hard to overeat that thing if that's the only thing on your plate or if there's just something yeah. plain next to it, like maybe a salted steak or something like that. A dry uh, baked potato. It's like, you know. Yeah. Good You're luck not going to overeat that. Good yeah. luck eating the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Really not. So I think simplifying what we put in our body, having uh, – and that makes that makes cooking a lot easier too. You know, you start doing simple meals that are, um, you know, five, ten ingredients tops with the spices included. It's pretty easy to put that down and not overeat. But, you know – who was the guy you just had on the show? It just released. Um, uh, Doctor Lee, or the the he sounds like he's from Montreal, Quebec, Seamland. Canada. Oh, uh, Seamland, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was great, guy. dude. He was yeah, great. He's so but that's good. that's the whole thing. Like, how do you? I think for people that are losing weight, or whether whether it's for performance or longevity purposes, if you can condense your food into a feeding window, that gives you great power, and it's a hell of a lot easier to do if you come from the keto stance. Like, if you've at least spent a couple of weeks in ketosis or working your way to a lower carb diet that's maybe too high in protein or whatever, um, it's a lot easier to do intermittent fasting. But eating in a condensed window, I wanted to get, I was listening to that on the drive up here and I was like, man, I got a story to tell these guys. My good buddy, Levent Niazi, the guy I grew up with. And right as I was reading this, I was reading uh, Dr. Jason Fung's book, The Complete Guide to Fasting. And he was talking about how easy it is to lose weight and, and do better in all things from eating in an intermittent fasting window. 
And he even said that the science is showing you can still eat poorly in the fasting window. So I tell him this, and he's like, all right, Kingsbury, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to eat a one moon pie every hour on the hour for the eight-hour feeding window that I have, and I'm going to see if I lose weight. I'm going to put this to the test. <laughs> so he fasted every day for 16 hours. He only ate for eight, and he had eight fucking moon pies every hour on the hour. And the dude lost over a pound a day for three weeks. Did he have like moon pies and something else or just moon pies? No, he was he's still eating like all of his food oh in God. addition to the moon pies. <laughs> And he was eating like clockwork. Like he was diligent. Every hour on the hour, he'd eat a fucking moon pie. He ordered them in bulk. Like he was a distributor. He bought them at wholesale 50 at a time <laughs> or 100 at a time even. And he'd eat eight a day. And he still lost over a pound a day. Damn. So for three weeks, you know, so, I mean, it, it does work. And I'm not telling people that so they can, you know, well, this is how I'll have my cake and eat it too. But it's Do you like, think that you could have uh, maybe a small surplus of calories? Is that... Is that maybe what the, what some of the science is showing with, with uh, some fasting like that, intermittent fasting? I think so, and I don't know. I mean, I really think the calories in, calories out doesn't necessarily apply to what type of calories. And this goes back to something I read. Uh, there was a study in The 4-Hour Body by Tim Ferriss that he quoted where they had group A, B, and C all on 2,000-calorie diets. One was a 2,000-calorie diet, 90% carbohydrates. One was 90% protein, and one was 90% fat. 90% carbohydrates gained weight every day, 90% protein lost a little bit of weight every day, and 90% fat lost over a pound a day. So, you, And that's the same amount of calories each day, mm -hmm. right? So you can see the vast difference between what we put in our body. And it's not to demonize carbs. They certainly have a time and a place, but if every waking meal and moment you've had included carbohydrates from birth on, and you're in your 30s or 40s, you don't have metabolic flexibility. Mm. You haven't spent time in ketosis. Your body hasn't spent time away from food. And that's, you know, in any of these things, if we look back, we wind the clock back 100 years. We wind it back 1,000 years. How did our ancestors live? You don't have to go to Paleolithic area to, to figure this out. Mm. You just say like, oh, what was life like before refrigeration? What was life like before shipping? And we could get bananas year round. Like, yeah, there was certain pockets of people that didn't live next to the equator. They didn't have access to food year round. They didn't have access to carbohydrates year round. There were cold periods where carbohydrates were, were null. They just didn't exist. Right. And they probably ate larger game because they were closer to the poles and lived in colder environments. And I think when you look at things that way and you think, consider your ancestry, like, sure, there's a lot of groups that live close to the equator that do well on a higher carbohydrate diet and maybe smaller prey like fish and fowl. Mm. Um, and then there's other groups of people that do better with red meat and less carbohydrate. So I think spending periods of time where we go without is really beneficial because it doesn't matter where you're from. Everybody went without food. You know, before religion, people went without food like that was guaranteed. So we have the genetics to do well with some form of fasting here and there. You know, when you talk about uh, your, your family, first off, is your whole family keto? Or no, not at all. Not at all. Okay. And for, for the record, like unless your kid has epilepsy or some disorder, there's yeah. no reason for them to be keto. Kids actually grew up. I think Dominic D'Agostino talked about this when he when he looked back through the research. Kids grew up fine um, mentally on a ketogenic diet, but they grew up smaller. Mm. So, you know, if you want your kid to maximize its growth potential, they need carbohydrates. Yeah. Uh, they also do just fine eating good carbohydrates. You know, you just want to limit the garbage. Um, outside of that, my wife. She eats fairly keto most of the time, but you know, we're trying to get pregnant and, and when you're pregnant and certainly after that, when you have milk, like if, if she dropped carbohydrates too far, her milk supply would go away. Mm. So like, yeah, you need to have all things on deck. And I think that's one of the reasons when you look at um, intermittent fasting research, 
women should not do really long fasts if they're trying to get pregnant or if they're trying to have a normal monthly cycle. Um, that's because their body likes to know that all things are on hand mm. to create life, right? And carbohydrates are a useful fuel for that. So I think that um, it doesn't mean they can't do intermittent fasting. Plenty of people do well. Some can do the 16-8. Some do better on 12 hours off, 12 hours on. Um, but having carbohydrates is usually a good thing within reason. And the reason why I asked is because a lot of people, I hear this a lot, they make excuses for like things they have in the house because of their kid. They're like, well, my kid likes to eat this and my kid likes to eat that. But when you were talking about Bear with Mark earlier, you were saying how he has such great habits. He can go out to places and say, oh, that's not good and that's not good. Have, has he had that like because of you and what you fed him or? Yeah, we don't, we don't keep, you know, we don't keep garbage in our house. We have snacks, we have things and, and you know, really what it comes down, both my wife and I are gluten intolerant. So he is for sure. Yeah. And we, and I knew this from when he was super young. My, <laughs> I had my mom babysitting him one night and we left him against the grain pizza there because he liked the against the grain gluten-free pizza. And we knew it didn't cause an issue. They ordered Domino's and they were too lazy to bake the fucking pizza. <laughs> the frozen pizza in the oven. So we come back and I'm like, I see you didn't need any against, you guys didn't cook the against the grain. They're like, oh no, we ordered Domino's. And I fucking, I was livid. Oh. And I was like, all right, well, we'll see. And I kind of kept quiet to myself. And he had like yellow mustard blowout shit, that shit all over my arm. I was covered <laughs> in and it smelled fucking foul. Oh, and he was crying and it hurt, oh, for, for, it hurt for him to shit because he was so bloated and, and had a lot of discomfort. And I was like, well, that takes the guesswork out of this, <laughs> right? Because right? he's not shitting like that from against the grain pizza or gluten-free toast. So I think from there, it was it was pretty simple. Like, he knows to order that. When he walks into the Onyx Cafe, he's like, mm-hmm. I'll have the gluten-free butter toast, please. He says that to the cafe lady, you know, every time he comes in and gives <laughs> him a big great. hug. Um, but yeah, he has a general idea that, you know, and I tell him flat out, I'm like, you know, if you want to have an organic lollipop, it's still sugar. It's still not great. But that's like, that's kind of where we compromise on certain things. So if he's doing a good job and his cousins are eating absolute trash, you know, we let him have that organic lollipop. And I think that's, that's kind of where you have the happy medium because we don't want to create some type of weird food issue where he grows up and he's like, he goes the opposite way. Yeah. Yeah. He gets out of the house and he's like, I'm fucking eating everything, you know? But I think he generally now, because he's, he's eating clean for so long. Um, he does feel a difference. And I think Kelly Strett was talking about that. Like his seven-year-old daughter at one point went and had cake at a birthday party and she came back and she was like, I don't think I like gluten. He's like, really? Why is that? She's like, I, my tummy hurts and I have a headache. So I think the next time I go to a birthday party, I'm just going to have the frosting. <laughs> and, and he was like, oh, that's cool. And it was really cool to see that. Like she could figure right. it out for herself. Right. And I think that's the goal with him is you give them good enough stuff and you try to bridge the gap with pizzas that aren't harmful or if your kid has a cheese intolerance you figure out a workaround for that but whatever the case is you you limit what is actually going to be harmful to them and you still give them options so they can actually live life and not feel like you know i'm I'm deprived of all the things of childhood when you were fighting how important were carbs and and did you know some of this stuff then you know a lot of the stuff on keto is first being introduced in in my final year when i was getting ready to retire and i heard you know i was listening to the tim ferris podcast that's when i heard dominic d'agostino and uh peter atia who i'm on a podcast with later this week come on and really push ketosis and once i had, I had retired i was like all right now i'm ready to try this maybe it'll help heal some of the cognitive issues that i've had and it has um with that, you know, I've, I mean, just in competing in jujitsu, if I try to stay in ketosis, I find like I need to do like targeted keto mm-hmm. where I have a bit of carbs before I train. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't have to be a lot. It could be 20, 30 grams 
or do some form of carbohydrate backloading. You know, if I'm training two or three times in a day leading up to a competition, yeah, I can eat a hundred grams of carbohydrates and I might not be, you know, in that 0.5 millimole or higher in right. ketones the next day, but who gives a fuck? Like it's, it's still a net gain. I'm still lo- reloading glycogen to the liver and the muscles. And if you're training glycolytically, I think it's important. You know, you have a lot of guys that burn out doing CrossFit and keto at the same time. And it's like, there is a happy medium either do cyclical keto or have some type of targeted keto where you have a little bit of carbohydrates right before you train and it won't kick you out of ketosis. You're not going to have, you know, three millimole ketones, but what's the point? Like you have to understand what you're doing and what is the reason behind it. And if you, if you want to have some level of longevity while you're, you're working for performance, you can, but you have to alter things a bit. It can't just be a one size fits all approach to anything in life. It does seem like too, when you, if you're on a real ketogenic diet and you're trying to consume a lot of fat for a fighter, crossfitter, um, maybe even some, a couple other sports, they might train multiple times a day. And it's just, you know, it's just kind of gross to eat like a real fatty meal and then have to train. You have you a know, pint so, of heavy cream right before you go in and <laughs> spar. <laughs> yeah. Like it would just kind of make you slow and make you sluggish. And that's where the carbs can be. Uh, really beneficial having a, a mild fat meal with some protein and some carbohydrates is way easier to eat before a training session. Even if it's, you know, two hours for a training session, it will kind of fuel you up and, uh, and make you feel good. That's some of the stuff I've noticed, you know, with bodybuilding and powerlifting, um, was, uh, that kind of transition into like getting into your training session. You know, if I ate like an omelet or something, it's just, was too heavy and kind of gross. And that's where all the blood, the blood, all the blood's in your stomach and yep. it takes a long time to break that shit down. Yeah. I mean, I think for fighters, like I know Matt Brown and a few other guys have, have played with keto and they're still fighting or, or he may be retired now, but, um, you know, they were doing that in their career towards the end of it. And there can be something, there can be some benefits to that, but generally that should be done like out of, out of fight camp, mm-hmm. you know, or like LeBron James did a ketogenic diet, but he did it in the off season. Yeah. And then when he went back in the season, he went back to eating carbohydrates and that's fine. He probably created some metabolic flexibility there. His body probably utilized those carbohydrates better. So he could, he could have the benefits of both worlds, but you know, know the why, you know, mm-hmm. if you're, if you're done with, with being a professional athlete and you're done pushing yourself to the upper limits of performance, that's a good time to entertain like really extended fasts and things like that. But if you're still in the game, like, no, you don't need to do a seven day water fast, like in prep for your next competition. That's not going to help you. It might help you live longer, but it's not going to help you perform better. You think there's maybe like three or four things you could just tell people that's super simple to keep, you know, to help them lose weight. Like uh, you're mentioning these kind of like low amounts of carbs, um, even towards the end of your career, um, 20 or 30 carbs before a session, 100 grams of carbs here and there, still probably like under 200 grams a day. Is Do you think there's like um, almost like a little bit of a blueprint you can just kind of like tell someone like you should have a, maybe a gram of carbohydrates per pound of body weight and a gram of protein per pounds of, per pound of body weight. And, uh, you know, something, something so simple that you just, you know, say, or do you just say, don't eat any carbs or whatever, whatever it might be. I think I just mentioned there's no one size fits all approach, but, uh, you know, play with the things and see what makes you feel good. And like I said, you know, the, the issue, I think when we look at genetics and, and where you come from, where your ancestors are from, is that you could have five brothers and sisters and every one of you took different genes from your parents. Mm. So there is no one size fits all. And really, I mean that. So it takes playing and fine tuning and seeing what works best for you and really monitoring how you feel when you do things. You know, and are you losing weight? Do you feel good? Do you have lower inflammation? And then where can you get away with a little bit more? Those kind of things. But 
it takes trying it on for size, you know, and giving it an honest go. If you want to try ketosis, don't fuck with it for two weeks and then say, ah, I didn't like that. It's like, no, you didn't give it an honest go. Give it a real go. And then after you've spent some time and you've become keto adapted, if you want to circle back to carbs a few days a week or twice a week or once a week, that's cool, you know, but know where you feel good. And I think that just takes effort, you know, it takes diligence and consistency. And then from there, you're okay. As far as helping people lose weight, um, intermittent fasting without a doubt is a big one. Um, limiting. So, you know, like I said, having these, these meals made at the home that are fairly low in ingredients helps quite a bit. Um, and then, you know, spend some time in ketosis, spend some time doing carnivore. I mean, all these things work, right? It's very hard to overeat on a carnivore diet. That's the first thing I figured out. I was like, I'm fucking sick of meat right now. This is the only thing I was putting in my body. So even your jaw, your jaw gets tired of it. The the weight (laughs) flew off, you know, like it absolutely flew off. Um, but there are things like that that you don't have to sign up for, for the rest of your life, but they're worth giving an honest go. And then from there you can kind of, once you can tackle your ability to consume food within reason, then it makes it easier to kind of go back and, and have, um, a little bit more moderation with what you put in your body. Just to kind of add to what you're saying. So <clears throat> quite possibly you get everyone to lose weight the same way. You know, you're saying there's no one size fits all, but if we were to regulate and say, you know what, America, you get three chicken breasts a day and that's all we're doing, right? Everyone would lose weight. They, they would clearly lose weight. There might be a few like outliers that don't lose weight, but for the most part, all the population would probably lose some weight. The problem is it's not a sustainable thing because it doesn't make them feel good. And I really like that you, that you threw that in there because I think that is the important thing. If I can make you feel good, even if it's jujitsu practice, if you're like, hey, man, let's, let's roll. Let's try some of these things out. And I do it and I get uh, euphoria from it or I feel pumped about it or excited about it because it was fun for me, then I'm going to come back. You know, maybe I'll come back a couple days a week and maybe I'll do it for the next for the rest of my life. But somebody eating three chicken breasts, you know, a day is not going to be anything sustainable because it's not going to make them feel good. They're going to feel like shit. So they may have lost weight, which is easy, very easy for anybody to do. But trying to find something that you can actually do for a long period of time is hard. Yeah. And then it comes back. You mentioned that to me. That's something I learned from you. Like, what's the best form of training? It's the one stealing shit. It's the thing you're not doing, right? Right. It's whatever the fuck you're not doing. And all the people that come to you and say, should I do CrossFit? Should I do bodybuilding? Should I do powerlifting? What do you love to do? Do you love picking up heavy weight off the ground? Mm -hmm. Do you love the pump and looking at yourself in the mirror? Like, what is the thing that actually makes you want to show up? That's the thing you should do for a while. And then every now and then sprinkle in the thing you don't like doing. You know, when I retired from fighting, I hated high intensity interval training because I'd spent so many years doing it. I was like, fuck that. I'll never do it again. I'll do long, slow nose breathing jogs and I'll lift heavy weight. And then at a certain point in time, I was like, eh, I should probably run that back a little bit, you know, and being able to, to get back on an airdyne and do 30 seconds all out, 90 seconds active recovery for eight rounds. It's a 20 minute workout, but it's gnarly, you know, but getting through that, like yeah, there's a huge benefit there. There's a huge benefit scientifically, but there's a huge benefit that I feel not only in my cardio, but in my looks. Like it's a great way to burn fat and it takes yeah. me fucking 20 minutes. All I got to do is show up and actually do the damn thing. Like, <laughs> all right, I'll keep that once a week. I'll throw that in there. So, you know, I think being consistent with a thing you enjoy that gets you to come back to it, that's really important. And then also saying yes to the thing that's really challenging. Like I got a, a good friend of mine who hates 
temperature change. He hates the cold. But I got that ice bath. And every time he comes over to work out, I'm like, get your ass in the ice bath. <laughs> He's like, fuck, how long do I got to go? I'm like, just get in. We'll see. You know, so he gets in. I'm like, all right, I got it for one minute, you know, and he'll get to that minute. And more often than not, he'll stay in longer. You know, because he's already fucking, he's already in the damn thing. He's already made it a minute. Now I'll go three, that kind of thing. Right. So I think, um, I forget, I think it was Dan John who said that the greatest coaching tip he ever had was just show up. 90% of it is just showing up. So you're, you're, you got to make some dietary changes. Just show up, go to the grocery store, pick out good food, have that in your, in your pantry, in your fridge. You know, you, you're worried about how hard you can push in the gym. I'm not feeling great. I only slept five hours last night just show up to the gym. It's going to be better than not going, right? Even if all you do is mobility and a little bit of kettlebell work, just show up no matter what it is in life, just show up. It doesn't sound like, I mean, it's a good thing, but it doesn't sound like you have too much like structure when it comes to exercise anymore. It seems like you do a little bit of everything. Kettlebells, trampoline. How does it look for you nowadays? You're exactly right. I wouldn't say I have any structure at all. And I know guys like Justin I got Burdick no goals. Would, <laughs> I know Burdick would cringe. I probably deadlift like once a month or squat like two or three days a month. You used to be able to deadlift some good weights back in the day, right? Well, for a fighter, not for a power lifter. I think you were moving some good weight, right? What were you I doing? never, I never got to six hundred. I got, I was, I was at like five fifty five, five seventy five in there. I mean, yeah. I pulled five fifty five. It felt like I could have done more, but yeah. If somebody says anything though, you can kick their head right off their shoulders. You know what I mean? True. I still have my flexibility, uh, <laughs> maybe a little bit less than, but you know, I, I, I really do check in with how I feel. And that goes to, uh, it even goes into my meditation practice. It's not often that I want to sit quietly in the, in a room in half Lotus and fucking just be quiet. A lot of times I want to walk, you know, that's my 10 minute walk. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'll do, sometimes I'll walk 10 miles listening to audible. Sometimes I'll walk and I'll just listen to nature. Sometimes I'll listen to binaural beats. You know, sometimes I'll do Tai Chi or Qigong. It really is how I feel. If I can't sit still, if I've got too much stress and shit, sitting still doesn't make me feel better. Moving that out, doing breath work, that'll make me feel better. Right. And same thing with the, with getting in the gym and figuring out what I need that day. There are, there's a template of what I want to do. Obviously I want to look good. So there's going to be something that has to do with hypertrophy at least once a week. There's going to be uh, different forms of cardio a couple days a week. One's going to be the long, slow, and one's going to be the short, hard. Um, I'm going to pick up something heavy or lift something heavy. And that might mean, you know, if I'm, if I'm feeling kind of tight and not mobile, I might not deadlift that day. I might just do a shitload of swings, you know, but some type of hip hinge, some type of squat, some type of press, some type of pull, all those things are still a factor. And then is what keeps it fresh is not knowing what I'm going to do. I don't have a, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm in for this, this, and this. It's like, no, I'm going to show up and I'm going to see what feels good. And then I'll push myself as I get going. And that goes back to the just show up. Like I might not feel like going through a hard ass workout. I might tell myself like, dude, just 20 minutes, you know? And then an hour and a half later, I've had a good warm up. I've hit some heavy lifting. I've hit some concept two rower and a ski erg. And I've hit 20 minutes in the sauna to finish it. And that's a pretty well-rounded workout for the day. Yeah. You know, so just kind of piecing things together like that. And, you know, having people that I really enjoy working out with, like if, if you're in town, we're going to lift weights. If, if I'm there with Aubrey, we might do some mace. We might do some bag work. He loves doing bag work with me, you know? So workouts vary, but, uh, you know, having people that I enjoy working out with, that really makes a difference because then I'm not just doing it by myself. I can actually enjoy and, and, and I don't have to think or figure out the workout by myself either. I can be like, you know what, today I really want to do a hinge, but what else do you want to do? 
like, I want to do some plyos. All right, we're going to have box jumps with the hinge, you know, those kind of things. So you can kind of piece it together with your buddy. And if they know what they're doing, then you're in good hands. I think you were mentioning to me that uh, Paul Check was doing like walking lunges with like 315 or something like that, right? He was so some fucking madman. <laughs> he was like, he, he hit. Uh, I mean, he's not a, he's a smaller guy. Here's what he did. He was 165. He's 50, he was 56 when we had this workout. He's 57 now. And we did uh, dumbbell overhead press. I had 70s. He had 80s in his hand, and we hit walking lunges with that. This was all part of the warm-up, by the way. I only got two reps. He was doing, like, sets of eight. Then we got to barbell. Walking. Uh, it was walking. a standing, standing lunge. So he did a standing yeah. lunge, come back to the same place, then walk forward, come back to the same place. He worked up to 275, and he hit six reps each leg. I hit two reps each leg with two and a quarter, and that was a PR, right? All beltless, barefoot. And he's like, son, when I was your age, I was doing 365. And he's like, a couple of years ago, I was doing 315 for six. And watching a 56-year-old man hit six reps with 275, perfect form, his knee would kiss the ground. <laughs> it was the gentlest knee touch to the ground, so he'd have full range of motion. And it was like, yeah, man, that's a lifelong practice. All the inner peace. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lifelong practice. He moved it with his mind. That's balance, though, too. You know, like he doesn't, he didn't have to slap himself in the face. He's not jumping up and down like Kevin Randleman and get himself going. Like (laughs) he just knows how to lock his shit in and get ready to go. And because he's been doing it for so long, there's a level of mastery with his body awareness. But also like that dude can move some heavy fucking weight, you know, even at that age. And like that, I was like, man, Paul, I want to be like you when I grow up. You know, and he's like, just keep keep working on the weaknesses, keep working on the strengths, and you'll be there. Yeah, he makes it sound so simple. He makes you feel dumb. <laughs> You're like, I'm an idiot compared to this guy. What are some things you've learned from some of these people? You have an opportunity to get around some really great people. I know that you were uh, coached by uh, by Jesse Burdick in, in powerlifting and stuff, and Jesse has a unique style to his training, and he's uh, he's like more, It's he's some weird, you know, he's, not, he's more, a lot more than a coach, you know? I think people don't recognize that. What's something you learned from Jesse Burdick? Yeah, Jesse's a really close friend. I love that guy. Um, you know, one of the workouts that he was showing, uh, that template, you know, the conjugate method was like you can pick up something heavy and work your way up to like a max double or a max triple and then hit an AMRAP after five minutes of rest and you've tackled two different avenues, right? right? All in one workout, you've worked maximum effort, low rep, and you've had this burnout that leaves you with a pump so bad you can barely sit down to shit, like all in all in the same day. And I think, you know, seeing that that you can really bridge the gap with different things. And then also, I mean, shit, something I learned from him was just how to pull, like how to get in a position to get really tight, whether I'm beltless or not, and just pick up something without ever being hurt. You know, and also how to train through injuries. Like that was something I'd never done before. I pulled uh I pulled an adductor because, you know, I was like doing sumo, sumo deadlift and I, and I pulled and I was like, man, I'm a lot stronger here. Let me widen this out a little bit. And you see mm. a guy like Jeremy, <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. like doing the yeah. splits, picking shit up, yanking it off the Jeremy ground. Jeremy so Avila who deadlifts like 900 pounds. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, all right, this kid's got, a, he's, there's something to that. So let me widen a little bit more. Let me widen a little bit more. And then one day I widened a little too far and felt a nice pull in the groin. And I was like, oh shit, man, I think I'm hurt. And, uh, you know, Jesse was like, all right, all right, let's see what you can do. So I came back the next day. I was, I was hurting way worse. You know, two days later I come in, he's like, let's get your feet really close and see if you can conventional deadlift. And I could, it was like two and a quarter. It's like, all right, cool. We can work with that. It's like, let's do, um, 
some safety bar squats to the box with your feet in real close. Can you do that? And I was like, yeah, and I don't feel any pain at all. And he's like, good, we're going to build on this while you recover. Right. And I got stronger with a fucking injury. And then when I came back to the sumo it's deadlift, like old which was, man workouts, yeah, which was not super wide anymore. It was a moderate sumo stance. Uh, I was stronger for it. Like my sumo had gone up because I was able to work through it the whole time. So like yeah. seeing things like that, it's like you can always do something, you know, you really can. I've met guys in the military with no more. They don't have legs and their upper body is just fucking chiseled out of granite yeah. because they never said like, oh, I can't do anything anymore. Like, no, they're fucking doing rope yeah, all the way to the giant ceiling. Yeah. yeah they're doing all I sorts do? of yeah. shit, you know? So I think that's, that's kind of the mindset to have, um, there's some things that are so debilitating, you know, spinal injury, whatever. Like, yeah, you, maybe you can't work through that. But there's a lot of things you can work through. So Jesse, like, Jesse's taught me a lot there. Yeah, what you said earlier about like the the cold tub, right? Like that's the way I view fitness and that's the way I view nutrition is like we should always pull people in and make it sound uh, – we should lie to them a little bit about how smooth and easy everything's going to be. <laughs> and then, you know, pour it on thick once, they, once we get them through the door and once we get them locked in, then that's when you can <laughs> dump everything on them as much as you can. I remember having uh, Jeremy Avila here, and, and this doesn't happen very often where we have like a mutant in the house. And usually when we do have a mutant in the house, the mutant is known. Everybody's like, okay, there's Stan Efforting. He's a mutant. Clearly he's got like 22 inch arms. He's a freak, you know? And then we've had uh, Eric Spoto here who broke an all time world record in the bench press. And he had like a, he had like 20 inch forearms, you know? So it's very obvious. And you see him move 405 and you're like, all right, mutant, right? You can spot him. But Jeremy's not very big. You know, he's not, he's jacked, but he's just doesn't, he doesn't really look intimidating. And I, I'll never forget in Seema's face when Jeremy came through the door and was started lifting with us, we're all just going through our warmups and we're lifting two plates and three plates and four plates. And once you start to lift like around four plates, when you start kind of looking around and you're like, you know, the way Jeremy moves four plates sumo, I've never really seen anybody lift any faster. Maybe Kaylor Woolham is they're they're about the same. He looks like he's going to snatch four plates. Yeah, yeah. Like that's he, how fast he moves it. Yeah, up yeah. It looks like yeah, he's going to chuck it right up over his head. It's it's unbelievable. Uh, but I remember, you know, as we went to like five plates, then and Seema's kind of looking around the room like, the hell's going on here? And then and then we went to six, and he went he ended went seven and eight plates and whatever the hell he ended up doing that for that day. But I remember in Seema coming over to me like, who the fuck's this guy? <laughs> and uh, it's rare to hear that from him. And I said, well, now you know how it feels when we're watching you lift. Because <laughs> he always makes everything look really easy. So it's interesting in, uh, in powerlifting how we have some of those mutants that are, they don't really look, they don't have, they don't look the part. They don't look like they can lift the world like they can. And you get that a lot in MMA. You get these guys that, oh, yeah. and Seema was mentioning in jiu-jitsu. These dorky little jujitsu yeah. guys yeah. that look like you Some know they're a comic book nerd and they actually are, you know. <laughs> and then like, uh, all right, you weigh 130 pounds, like I'll play with you. And then holy shit, I'm getting fucking submitted by this kid, you know. Like, like oh, I should not have thought that way about you. I'm sorry for that. Yeah. yeah, Jeremy's an interesting guy. Like I remember him. We we were in, we we're talking about Coach House before this. House was in town and we're all deadlifting, and he had eight plates on, and you know Jeremy's warm up. He grabs the bar and he yanks the bar. He doesn't, I mean, and this is before he, he does this pull, he'll yank it and he kind of pulls it into place. So rather than, you know, having a couple guys slide the bar over to even it out after the last guy's deadlifted, he just comes over and goes, Hah! and just fucking yanks this thing and ragdolls the bar with all eight plates to shake the weight into the position he wants. <laughs> and then stands up, gathers himself, goes down and yanks it off the ground. And like that to me, like that never got old ever. And I trained with him for a long time. I watched him move up. And, uh, 
yeah, when you when you witness specialness, like it's a pretty it's a pretty cool thing to be a part of. Yes, he was just uh, unbelievable strength. I wonder, you know, how that would transfer over, you know, for him, like in terms of like Olympic lifting or even something like jujitsu or wrestling. You know, if somebody that kind of grip was to grab a hold of you, if he had the technique of jujitsu, I mean, he could get literally yank limbs off your body yeah like chimpanzee strength he know, does like have the mindset for it probably yeah most definitely he's pretty he's pretty fired up you know mm-hmm. yeah um as far as mindfulness is concerned because you talk about mindfulness a lot like meditation uh etc first off did you have a lot of that when you were a fighter and then nowadays how do you implement that like daily yeah and fighting it kind of came out of necessity because i didn't really have a way to quiet my monkey mind and i would you know like i said like i would have pure panic sometimes when the door shut and um you know that's one of those things where i didn't i didn't really have an avenue of knowing where to tackle it. a lot of people that word gets tossed around quite a bit these days mm-hmm. uh breath work was really the first entry point i had into having a focal point outside of my thoughts and really feeling a difference like it's palpable you know and i mentioned that before on the podcast i've said it a thousand times wim hof when he says feeling is believing there's no doubt that statement is 100 percent true when you feel different and you start to get high on your own supply of oxygen you know it works so it doesn't matter what double blind studies have been done to verify it like you know that shit works and you feel it for yourself and it's accessible anywhere you go so taking a deeper dive into the breath work that's been a very easy hack to shift my state of mind. Um, Where would you say that someone starts with breath work, by the way? I would, uh, the, the place I send people now is Art of Breath. You know, I've had Brian McKenzie and Rob Wilson on a couple of times. Um, they do online courses. If you can make it to one of their seminars, you know, you just look, go to their website. Uh, I think it's um, prepare to perform or powerspeedendurance.com. But, but uh, sorry, I'm blanking on that. I'll, We'll figure it out and link to it in the show notes. For there, we <laughs> there we go. There we go. So power, power, speed, endurance. And then you look up Art of Breath and uh, they have an app now called State. And so like it'll guide you through all the various forms of breath based on what your need is. You want to quiet your mind before you go to bed? There's there's an app for that. You want to go to uh, get, get, get your gas tank going before you have a hard workout? They got you covered. Uh, you want to recover in between sets because you got another big lift coming up. They got you there. You got you got your 90 seconds off in between your 30 second sprints. They got you there. So like having that full from morning to evening way different ways of breathing, they've been the most um the most thorough breath work I've ever been a part of. And they've learned from Wim Hof, Buchenko, uh McKeown. Yeah, Patrick mm, McKeown. That's taking the information from they're, various they're people. They're taking it from everyone and they're working hand in hand with them to really make this their own. And it's, it's I love watching people blow up these tiny balloons. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always like, give me a fucking break. What are they doing? It looks so stupid, right? Well, they want you to use your diaphragm and they're teaching people how to breathe through their bellies for the first time. And obviously, you know, like if you're in powerlifting, you understand that. You understand how to brace right. and get that TVA activated. Not many people do, right? You got a lot of chest breathers, lifelong chest breathers, people who have lived in you know, sympathetic their entire lives, they're gassed up on caffeine and they're constantly breathing with their neck muscles and all these accessory muscles and you teach people how to breathe for the first time, it's, it's really incredible because it helps with performance, but it also helps with mindfulness, mindset, how to quiet the mind, how to get into that rest and digest state. I remember um, I made fun of Coach House because he was like blowing, you know, because his long ass warm-ups that he does, you know? I was making fun of him for blowing up a balloon. He's like, Bell, in about five years, you're going to be doing the same goddamn thing. You'll be blowing up a balloon just like me. <laughs> I was like, I'm not blowing up any balloon before my workout. Trust me. 
but it, it works. The, you messed with it before? Yeah, yeah, it does work. Um, it's just a, so, is it more of a tool or, or? It's just activation, you know, right. and like McKenzie got a lot of shit because he was into the training mask and he's like, look, it's not, it's not altitude training. But what it forces you to do is it forces you to use your diaphragm. Mm -hmm. It forces you to belly breathe. It forces you to warm up. And that's something that he's big into is how do you get the pulmonary? How do you get your lungs to be activated prior to engaging in some type of aerobic activity? It's oftentimes it takes you a mile into a run to feel like your lungs have caught up to your legs. Well, that's, that's for a reason. So there's a way you can activate that before, during your warm up. You can do nose breathing the whole time. It's super easy. So you don't need to buy any equipment. Mm -hmm. Do your entire warm up only breathing through your nose, and it's it's hard to do. But as you get used to that, now when you need to start breathing through your mouth because you've picked it up, it's everything's turned on, like it's working properly, and you're using the muscles in your abdomen and your diaphragm properly. So you're actually taking full quality breaths, and you'll find like you can find that happy medium of working out and still having not having to catch up to your breath, where you're like fuck. I overdid it. You know, I yeah. outpaced myself on the run or outpaced myself in sprints. Like, no, you got it. You're good to go. Have you messed around with taping your mouth shut for either workouts or sleep or anything like that? No, and I read that in the Oxygen Advantage. I think it's a great it's a great tool for mouth breathers or people that have an issue with that. Um, I think I only mouth breathe when I lay on my back, but I, I'm a side sleeper, so I'm pretty good uh, with that. And I don't think it's, it's never been an issue for me. Mm -hmm. um, I like that as a tip for people who have a problem really getting to that point where they can force themselves to work through their nose. Um, but yeah, you know, like there, there's a, I think in the military they do that. They hold, you have to hold a certain amount of water in your mouth and finish a run. Damn. And if, when you spit it back out afterwards, if you, if you oh, <laughs> have less water in your mouth by the end, you got to run more or do whatever you got to oh, keep going. Shit. So <laughs> there's, there's ways you can get around that without tape, but yeah, yeah. tape works too. Um, oftentimes like when I do that long, slow, it'll be all nose breathing. I'll do a 10,000 meter row on the concept two rower, only breathing through my nose and I'll get that done in 38, 40 minutes. It's not, Damn, that's gonna be it's tough, not though. record pace or anything yeah, like yeah. that. I'm listening to audible not like pump me up music. Mm -hmm. um, but then I got, you know, a good solid 40 minutes and, and Andy Galpin's into that too. You know, like a lot of these guys are buddies and they all, they all see the science behind it. It works. That's it. You know, it really works. And I'll do long, long runs long for me being like two to three miles not a long run by, by uh, endurance standpoint, but two or three miles breathing through my nose the whole time, that pays dividends when I go back to my high intensity intervals. It pays yeah. dividends when I'm on the heavy bag, pays dividends and when I'm on the mat doing jujitsu. Like all that shit matters if I can control my breathing. You know, it's crazy, especially like when you're on the mat doing jujitsu. I see, I know this is a lot in tournaments and at like when sparring, you'll be rolling with your partner and then you'll see them and you're still just breathing through your nose and you just know you got them, you know? It's crazy. And you know, when you've been got, like I was rolling with Robert <laughs> Drysdale out in Vegas and I was fucked. Like he's so good. And, uh, I saw him breathing through his nose the whole time. He wasn't sweating either. And oh it was really God. hot in the gym. They didn't have AC going in Vegas. And I had to take two rounds off full Wim Hof status. I'm up against the wall <sighs> for fucking five minutes just to be able to get back on the mat. That's how waxed that was. He taped, he comfortably tapped me six times in a round without wow. overexerting, just going smooth, taking what I gave him, and yeah. I was toast. <laughs> that was no gi or gi? Gi. Gi? Yeah. Yeah. Just crushing you. Yeah. It's demoralizing. It is. <laughs> it is. Because we're both I, black belts. But I the find difference. it fascinating, you know, like in fighting, you know, in football, you know, the guy across from you kicks your ass or whatever, and... I don't know. There's different plays and different schemes, and like you can, even though you're on the field and you're against each other, you can. There's ways around it, you know. 
Um, and you don't always go against the same guy. Maybe they switch, you know, maybe switch sides because you have a strength that the other guy doesn't possess or whatever, or a weakness or whatever it might be. But in fighting, there's like, there, there's, there's, there's kind of not a way to like hide, hide away from it, shy away from it, you know, and you get in there. What I always think is so crazy is somebody's gotten whooped up by, on some, um, by someone in sparring for years, you know, and then they end up fighting them in the UFC or end up fighting them, uh, in a tournament or whatever it is. Um, or they've just faced the guy previously and they lost and gotten knocked out you know, bad, you know, and then they come back and they still fight that guy. How does, how does that happen? How does someone do that? I don't how know. Do you kind of like re-strategize, reload against someone to just kick the shit out of you. I don't know. I mean, there's, there's definitely, there's a lot of people who are very successful in MMA who have a concrete belief in themselves. You look at John Jones, Anderson Silva, you know, when Anderson fought Chael the first time, he didn't think he was a better wrestler than Chael. But he knew he was better than Chell, and he didn't have he had an unwavering confidence and belief in himself, and that's why all the way up until the end of that fight, he still knew he was going to win. He never threw in the towel. He never thought he was going to lose. Got his ass beat for four and a half minutes into the fifth round. You know, like he was losing every round decisively, and still pulled off this submission because he never gave up and he always believed in himself. I, if I was losing a fight, it didn't it didn't necessarily go that way. You know, like, and I think that that's the difference between. Um, good, good guys and, and great guys, you know, is that unwavering confidence and belief in themselves. So, you know, maybe they've, they've lost to certain people in training, but they still believe like I'm the fucking best in the world. I'm going to beat this guy's ass and he doesn't see it coming. And whether they win or not, they have that going for them. Mm. Do you think that's like, can you learn something like that? Or do you just have that? I think you have that. And obviously it comes across as arrogance or cockiness in certain people, but there's a difference between that being true and that being a facade. Right. And mm -hmm. you can tell, you can usually tell like whether they're arrogant, like Conor McGregor, you know, comes across as brash and arrogant and all that shit. But up until Khabib, like you didn't question if that guy believed in himself or not. Yeah. And he kept showing up with what he did with Aldo, what he did with everybody he went against. Like he, he always showed up and he always performed well. And then, you know, Habib's just a whole different guy, right? Yeah. That's a mm -hmm. complete mismatch. So I don't know that he's able to regain that coming back. It'll be interesting to see. But I think like, you know, up until that point, you weren't you weren't looking at him like, oh, that's just fake. That's just a, you know, that's all for show. Like, yeah, maybe there's some antics to hype a fight. That's for show. But that dude knows he's going to whoop your ass. Now going forward, we'll see if that continues, yeah. you know? I wonder if you need to build a little bit of arrogance because uh, the other like a few weeks ago, my jujitsu instructor was talking about how all the like maybe most of the world champions he's met and some of the famous jujitsu guys he's rolled with. He said that they always seemed a little bit arrogant, not confident, literally like arrogant. And when I heard that, I'm like, should, should I develop a little bit of arrogance? Like, I don't want to be arrogant. Well, that's you bring up a good point because people always say <laughs> Just like asking the question check. means you're already there. <laughs> <laughs> People always say, like, check your ego at the door. Yeah. And it's like, no, no. Ego is what makes you want to be better. Ego is when you go home and you're like, fuck that. I'm not going to get fucking tapped again. That's what makes you show up. Mm -hmm. That's what makes you want to desire to get better. Ego is what makes you say, like, I'm not quitting until I get to 600. And then I'm not quitting until I get to 800 and, and so on and so forth. Like, that is ego. That's the thing that makes you want to be better, right? So it's how do you wrangle that? Um with some balance, but yeah, I, I would say, I don't know that I would use the word arrogant with, with, uh, everyone I've met in jujitsu, but I've trained with a lot of great guys. We're on world champions like Lucas Leitch, who's, yeah. who's small. I mean, he's 170 and he's, he's gone up multiple weight classes 
and I was rolling with him. I did a private lesson with him and my dad and a couple other guys. And, uh, I was rolling with him and he kept looking over at my coach and he's like, Oh, he's so strong. So strong. You know, and I was like, fuck you. you know, and I'm like, and I'm, of course I'm stronger than him. Right. But he just kept fucking with me and he, he knew, you know, and he'd smile and then Baron bowled on my back and choked me out. And, you know, we slap hands and go again. And like, you know, the whole time he just kept talking shit. And I was like, this guy's, he's a legend, you know, and I, and I love the guy, but yeah, he had, he had a little bit of that, you know, and that's okay too. Cause he fucking backed it up. Like, yeah. there's no doubt about it. He is one of the best ever. No doubt about it. Is uh everyone in fighting have a story, you know, like uh the gym that you trained at? Does each person have the kind of their own unique story that um you know, when you dig a little deeper you kinda maybe find out you're all you're all in it for a similar reason? I wouldn't say that. And even looking at AKA, you know, like Cain Velasquez is a different story. His parents were immigrants. Um he has a huge family. He's the only one that's a real athlete, I think, in his family. He's got a different story. Mm. DC losing his daughter, uh, you know, being captain of the U.S. Olympic wrestling team. Like, he's got a different story. You know, there's there's everybody who has gone through something that's brought them to where they are. And then there's guys that that you know whether they whether it's honest or not, they really haven't been through a lot. They just are really good at that. You know, and that's something they love to do. Maybe some of them don't have scars. Maybe they just were collegiate wrestlers. Yeah, Something you know, like that. it's not like you have like, oh, the tail, where was your trauma? Why'd you, yeah, like, no, yeah, no, 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 yeah. it doesn't have anything yeah. to do with that. And the vast majority of people, I think that's something that surprises people when they meet a lot of people in MMA is that they're like, you know, a common thing that I got when I was on. I always think truth, fighters so. are batshit crazy. Yeah. Or, crazy like, motherfuckers. Well, that's what I always think. Yeah, you get, you get somebody and you're like, wow, he was really, really highly educated. You know, he spoke <laughs> to me and it's like, yeah, motherfucker, a lot of us went to college. You know, like, like we're all yeah, we're pretty smart. You know, I like, read books and stuff. Yeah. So I think uh, there's a misconception that maybe happened from boxing in being looped in because MMA is a combat sport, but it doesn't really exist now. You know, you, you hear people talk outside of the octagon when they're extremely tired and, and either gloating over the victory or hyping the next fight or whatever. And you, you get a chance to talk, you hear them on a podcast, you hear them on Rogan's and you're like, damn dude, that guy's really cool. You know, Matt Brown, he's an animal on the ultimate fighter. Like he was like, fuck dude, that guy's got a short fuse. He's got a hot head. And then, you know, I got to meet him on a tour for the troops. And I was like, this guy is awesome. He's, he's incredibly intelligent. He's soaking up knowledge. He, you know, and, and all those things. And you listen to him on Rogan's, you're like, damn, this guy's fucking awesome. So I think, um, you know, even, even people that you wouldn't necessarily, you know, from seeing him on a TV show or listening to him in the octagon after a fight, like there, there's more to him. Even Conor McGregor, you know, like yeah. you looked at that, that little mini series they did for him and he's sitting there in full Lotus doing meditation and, and mindfulness practices and really getting into a quiet space. It's like, yeah, man, there's balance to these guys at the top. They figured out ways to to not always be turned on. Like you got to have an off switch here and there. Was fighting mainly just like fighting for you or did it help you deal with anything? Well, you know, football, I started playing football when I was 10 years old and that for me was my outlet. It was a way that I was, I could blow off some steam by button heads with people and, and uh, just getting that angst out, you know? And so fighting started for me as that, um, it was therapeutic punching people in the face for sure for a while. And then as I gained more tools along the way from, from breath work to meditation to plant medicines, um, all those things gave me different avenues that did the same thing. They helped me to, to have peace inside and, uh, fighting still 
you know, maybe with exception of the UFC, but up until that point, cause there's just so much on the line in the UFC, you know, like whether I was winning on a four fight win streak coming off two fight of the nights and a 30 second knockout, like I got to ride that so I can move up the ranks. There's pressure there. If I'm on a losing streak, which I finished with four losses in a row, I have pressure there to end that losing streak. Um, not even thinking about all the people watching, just feeling that pressure of where my career path is headed. Uh, there was always more to it there. Whereas in King of the Cage and some of these lower level shows, it was like nothing mattered. You know, like if I lose, so what? I'm doing well here. And I didn't think I was going to lose. I had that unwavering belief in myself. So, you know, it, it, there was definitely a transition at different points in my career where things got easier and things got harder. Um, in my mind, it was it was having these other practices that really started to take care of what fighting was filling the void in my life and, and really giving me that outlet for. I no longer needed it to be the outlet for that. Okay. So, well, what managed to maybe fill, what took the place of fighting for you? Good drugs. Good I mean, drugs. <laughs> like, you know, uh, I give credit, a lot of credit to ayahuasca, a lot of credit to psilocybin mushrooms. Um, we're just sorting my shit. And also, you know, giving me confidence and moving on past that, you know, knowing that there is more to life, um, allowing me to see things from a bird's eye view with what's going on in my life and really being able to factor in everything that was happening with fighting. I could have gratitude for it. And then also know like, this is not something I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And something I had always said going into it was like, I'm not going to, if I'm, if I'm ever a 500 fighter, I'm out. It's not baseball. Like I'm taking damage here, especially at light heavyweight. Mm. So once I was four and four in the UFC, I said, if I lose again, I'm out. And then I lost again and I was out, you know? So I stuck to that and never really returned to it. Um, you know, I think it's important to have that. And even Tim Ferriss talks about that in the four hour work week, like know your number and know you're out. Don't keep gravitating towards the thing, you know? So I had my number. If it was 500 or less, I'm out. And, um, I think plant medicines gave me the perspective to know that it was okay to put that in my rear view and to look towards the future, not knowing what that was going to be still working in the titty bar, living in my mom's garage, but trusting in that whatever it was going to be, it would work out for the better. And it totally has, you know, it took a while to manifest. It took a while to bring in, um, the ability to podcast with awesome guys like yourselves and, uh, continuing to learn and, and just continuing to, to grow as a person and then share whatever that is, whatever's working, you know, that's it. Like, let me, let me figure some shit out through trial and error and trying things on for size for myself and then share that with the world and talk about my fuck ups and my pitfalls and talk about my successes and, and where my wins are. And that's just been it. And it's been great. Made a career out of it, you know, continuing to learn every day, continuing to be a student as much as I can and still relying heavily on those tools that got me here. You know, I mean, two weeks ago I was in Costa Rica doing four sessions of ayahuasca and that's because I learn something new every time I go. It's because there's no staleness there. It's brand new. Each ceremony is different. And I think that, um, you know, giving it space, it had been two years since I had done it. So giving it space to actually work with whatever those lessons and downloads are makes a big difference too. You know, it's not just something I lean on and go to every day. I might lean on going for my, my walk every day or something that's a little less hard on the body. Um, <laughs> some form of breath work, things like that, eating clean, whatever the case is, it's going to help me level up and have a little bit cleaner lifestyle. And then from there I can, you know, dip into the hard work once in a while and see what comes up for me. And that's, that's paid dividends. What are the habits that have led you to go from retired UFC fighter 
to working at a titty bar, living in your mom's garage, uh, to, you know, you're one of the higher ups pretty much at, at on it. Right. I mean, you, you have a very important role there. How, how in the hell has that happened? It's, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you think about them, I mean, there's a great book called mastery, but you think about things that, that help you move in a direction, acquiring knowledge is one thing. Putting that into practice is a, is a totally different thing. The more you can accumulate, that just makes you more valuable, you know? And, and I didn't realize this as a fighter that I was acquiring things that would help me in life and in my career. And even, you know, I know a lot of people that went to college and they don't use their fucking degree for anything they're doing now. I studied communication and sociology. And a lot of what I talk about now on a podcast using communication is what makes people tick. And the differences that we have and that they're <laughs> fucking both avenues are coming up in my career, you know? So everything that I've done, thankfully, has somehow factored into what I do now. But, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of people get to a point where they think like, I'm done with school. I, you know, I don't, they don't, they might not say it or think it, but they have this idea that they're not, they don't need to learn anything else. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I'm good now. I got my career. I got my job. I know what to do. I've mastered my craft and they stop learning. They stop wanting to read. They're happy just going on the fucking rabbit wheel or the hamster wheel where they're going to just watch keeping up with the Kardashians and pound a beer and, and just call that life. And that's never been the case for me. Um, you can also go to the opposite end of the extreme where you just constantly want to learn as much as you can and you're never really doing shit. And Paul Chick talked about that. So, I mean, there has to be balance. There has to be the doing. And that's what, you know, I'm rocking the Bruce Lee shirt. As you said earlier, it's not enough to be. We must do. Um, Too much consuming. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can, you can come to a place where you're chasing constantly and you, you know, that's something that plant medicines have taught me too, is the idea of having gratitude for what is and acceptance of what is, you know, and if I can get to that place where I really have like, sure, I have goals, but fuck life is pretty damn good where it is right now. And having appreciation for that really paints things from a different lens. So I can come from that place of gratitude moving forward and appreciate everything that I have right now. And then as I continue to level up, it's bonus material. It's not what I don't have that's driving me. It's, it's everything that I have and everything that I've done and everything that I'm around, my family, the people that I get to talk to. And then I move forward and level up and continue on. You just don't worry about it. It comes right back to you. It comes to you rather than you trying to always uh, like overreach for it. Yeah. You don't have to force it or constantly be in the state of wanting, right? Yeah, that's it. You yeah. know, like, like, yeah, man, I want more, but I don't have to live in that state of wanting. I can Non-stop. live in a state of appreciation, you know? <laughs> it's hard. And then move towards the goal, you know? Yeah, it's hard. You want it all and you want it yesterday, right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> want everything to come, come at you a hundred miles an hour. I feel like we've come back to like ayahuasca multiple times, but I'm curious because you call them plant medicines now. Other than ayahuasca, is there anything else that you think could help expand someone's like idea of themselves or help them like lead them down that path? Yeah. Something I want to give. And I mean, I could, I could mention every other drug that I like. Uh, <laughs> there's certainly plenty, uh, mushrooms, MDMA, things like that. But I think giving people, a lot of people that aren't ready for that, a lot of people that don't want to do that. Mm. Um, there's a good book called the science of mindfulness, uh, by Dr. Ronald Siegel. And it's one of the great courses on audible. I recommend it to a lot of people. Um, many different tools for people that have no idea what the fuck mindfulness is on where to get started, where the science backs it. So if you think it's woo woo or think it's a little out there, like it kind of bridges the gap for the left and the right brain people. Um, 
outside of that, one of the greatest tools ever is a float tank. Like, can you sit in complete darkness with nothing coming in without your cell phone, without social media, without keeping up with the Kardashians, without any input, without loud music? Can you just be in silence in darkness and float? And if you can get to quiet mind there, it's much easier. That's a trainable skill. And that's something that Ronald Siegel talks about. He's a professor at Harvard. Like the dude's highly intelligent. Um, you can train your brain like you would a muscle and the ability to shift from fight or flight into rest and digest that's trainable. So the more often you can do that, the easier it becomes in the day to day. So shit hits the fan. Life comes at you as it does for everyone. If you've worked on that part of yourself, it's a lot easier to deal with that stuff. And I think the float tank is, it's one of the most underrated things on the planet. I mean, even it has a seat at the table among every teacher, every plant medicine, every form of meditation. Float tanks are, are they're in a category of their own and they have a seat at the table for that reason. Like you, there, there's nowhere else where you can deprive yourself of all sensation. And when you do that, it's amazing what bandwidth is freed up in the brain. You know, I've, I've gone in for creativity purposes and contemplated different things. And I've gotten a shitload of downloads on as far as different ways to, uh, problem solve, you know, thinking outside the box. I've gone in there and just focused on quiet mind. And I've had some of the deepest meditations I've ever had in my life. I've also gone in there on a little LSD and, <laughs> and had you know, like some of the best visionary experiences of my life. And um, you know, even on a microdose, just because nothing else is coming in. You know, so what, what gets freed up with that? Um, there's really nothing like that. Even sitting in a dark room, you're still sitting. You're still focusing on, oh, my fucking hips are a little tight. <laughs> or, man, my spine is... Doesn't feel good. I should have done more mobility. Before My nose I got is itchy. Here. Yeah, yeah. But you get in there, you get in the float. Like soon enough, you don't feel your hands anymore. Um, the temperature is the same as your skin, you know. And it might be a little hot at first, but eventually it normalizes, and then boom, you're gone. You know, and that that could be thirty minutes, could be ninety minutes. I floated for six hours at one point. I mean, like it, it, all of it's it's challenging, but it gets easier the more often you do it, as with anything else. And it can be a very very powerful tool. You gotta buy one for the gym, Mark. <laughs> Thirty grand, <laughs> pony up. Let's you got go. it. I'm coming back. <laughs> the uh, floating for six hours. I was mad. I'd imagine that's when you took the LSD. <laughs> that was mushrooms that night. Oh, there <laughs> you go. There was some sort of performance enhancing drug in there. Uh huh. It's still. I mean, there's been times where I've just felt full and I had to get out. You know, yeah. like I, I even on a 90 minute float at 75 ish minutes, I was out and I just showered and I and I sat and. And just, just reviewed everything that I got because, you know, with the enhancement of LSD, like, uh, time doesn't really matter at that point. You know, like I, in, in however long I was in there, I had, you were in there for four days, bro. (laughs) Any, any intention that I had going in was it came back tenfold. You know, I got everything I, I wanted and needed and more. And I think in those experiences, it did. It wasn't necessary to stay in the additional time. What's kind of the weirdest thing that's ever happened uh, from, you know, doing some of these psychedelic drugs and these various forms of meditation and stuff? Like you ever like just get done with it and just start crying or? Yeah, but that wouldn't be weird. Uh, that's uh, just well, a release, yeah, you know? Yeah, I don't know, yeah I don't just know. like uncontrollable emotion or something. That's Yeah, I, shit. I mean, you could take that anywhere. What's the weirdest thing? Um, 
Well, not to necessarily be weird, but I guess hmm. the question is, yeah, have some of these things made you super emotional and like dug really deep into something that you did maybe just had no idea was even there? Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, I, in a lot of the first ceremonies, I worked through childhood stuff with ayahuasca and, you know, being out in, in Costa Rica recently, my 25th ceremony, and I've done a lot of other plant medicine experiences with psilocybin that have been really transformative. Um, I just, I, I was feeling kind of tight and I had, uh, I had the, the healers work on my neck physically and so physical healing was a part of that and as i went for my second cup i brought in maybe maybe we'll work on some of the mental emotional healing and if there's anything left from childhood well you can work through that and i didn't sleep for one minute that night i stayed up the whole night uh extremely nauseated it was very hard physically and and for sure one of the most challenging nights of my life reliving a lot of the shit that i went through and that in the end was incredibly healing because it gave me space to process it but it would still blew me away like you know I've now done I uh, 26 times and there was still more to go. So, so revisiting that, it sounds like, why the fuck would you ever want to do that? But, you know, in that experience, I was able to pull out of that with gratitude, with uh, a new lens of, okay, I'm still affected by some of this stuff. And that's creating different patterns in the way I respond to my son and the different ways that I respond to my wife and how I am with my parents, you know? If I'm short or I don't want to hear it, like rather than just starting fresh, you know, and having a fresh lens that's not altered through my own shit and baggage, you know, how can I just be fresh and be new and be the best version of myself for my, my family that I've created now and my family that I grew up with. So it's called a ceremony probably because it's somewhat ritualistic, but it's really like a treatment almost. Yeah, I mean, we see this now even with MDMA. Like you can take MDMA in the club and dance and have an amazing time or you can do, use it like MAPS is doing with PTSD and it is a treatment. And the crazy thing is you only need three treatments in their protocol and they're healing some serious drug-resistant people that have post-traumatic stress. Mm. Lifelong, you know, or, yeah, things or like decades rape, long. Rape and things like that, right? Like yeah, really and, and, brutal you know, things. Yeah. Military guys, you know, I mean, people who yeah. can't really be in public you know, a year after the fact are, are, they're okay now, you know? And then that, that just goes against the entire model of our healthcare system. You know, the fact that they're, they're not given a prescription and told to go home with it and take one a day. Like, no, you come in once every three months, we're going to give you a dose and you're going to have assisted therapy throughout the process and after and in between. And a year later, you're going to be good. Mm. That's, it's pretty remarkable. Mushrooms, uh, decrease decriminalized in Colorado, right? And uh and now in Oaktown. In Oakland, yeah. Is that why you're <laughs> yeah. is that why you're here in NorCal? <laughs> and so I'm back. Um what do you think of that? I think that's really, really important. And that's not to say, you know, this should be a free for all. And that's something like people conservative people will often say like, well, what the fuck? I don't want some kid going to Walgreens to grab ecstasy. And it's like <laughs> that'll never be the case. You know, that's not what MAPS is pushing for. Um but for people to have the opportunity to have access to these things and for therapists to have that in their toolkit, not for everyone, but for the people where they know it's going to be applicable and that, it, that it can help. Um, you know, they didn't decriminalize meth. They decriminalized <laughs> shit that actually can help people. Right. And when you think about this, like the, I think the initiative that helped move that was legalize nature. And it's like, you guys know with Kratom mm -hmm. and here in Cali with cannabis, like, sure. I know a lot of people that just smoke themselves into a, into a stupor each day and they don't get shit done. It's like dude on the couch with the beanie living with his mom still. It's not hurting anyone. That's what he wants to fucking do. So be it. Right. Um, 
Can you die on psychedelics? Probably not from the psychedelic, but yeah, people jump out of fucking windows and do stupid shit. So it isn't to say like, yeah, you can go down to the corner store and pick up a bag of mushrooms. That's not it. But should you go to jail for possessing that and doing it in the comfort of your own home? No. If you break the law while you're on it, you try to get behind the wheel, you hurt somebody. Yeah, you're going to be punished for that still. But um, this idea that you shouldn't be allowed to responsibly use these things is it's bananas that that is criminal, that people go to jail for possession of things like that. And so I think that is a move in the right direction. And I think it's really important, especially, you know, they didn't just do mushrooms. It was, I think most cactus like peyote, Wachuma or San Pedro, ayahuasca, a lot of things are on that bill in Oakland. So they took it a step further actually than Denver did. And I think that's really cool to see that. Time to make a trip, Andrew. I'm down. We're going together. Yeah. But, you know, you mentioned, you've said this multiple times, um, people need to know when they're ready. So this is going to sound super broad, but if somebody does want to try some of this stuff, how can they know they're ready to give it a shot? So they, there is a term for that and they say there's a calling, right? And the calling is you hear about it, maybe you read about it, you, you have a friend that does it and you, you know, you might think, oh, I want to try that. Kind of similar to the same calling I got for steroids, probably. <laughs> <laughs> you need to be stronger. <laughs> mm. You know, my friends are talking about Trenbolone quite a bit. I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready. I'm going to make a trip to Mexico. It's going down. I'm going to go to that uh, <laughs> Trenbolone ceremony. Yeah, the Trenbolone ceremony. Uh, yeah, I think, I think you. it's not something that you just wake up one day and you're like, I'm going to do it. I mean, it's something that lasts I and mean, that's, that's the way, you know, as you check in and it's, it's not done on a whim, you know, the beauty of going all the way to the Amazon, it's, it's not fucking easy to get there. It's, there's a flight you're taking off work. A lot of times you have a 10 day trip just to get there and do the medicine for the week. Cause you have to have time in front of the trip and time at the end of the trip. Uh, oftentimes it's two days travel. It was two days travel. Even in Costa Rica, we flew in, we stayed in San Jose overnight. Then we had a drive to a ferry, a ferry boat ride, and then an additional drive to get to the healing center. And we're there for a week. We drive, we ferry, and we drive to the hotel. We stay overnight, and then we fly home the next day. So, I mean, having that space around 10 days, A, it's, it's, there's a financial piece there that goes into that commitment. B, you have to take time away from your family, time away from your job or whatever commitments you have. But if you're able to do that, rather than just go to the homie down the street who's doing ceremonies out of his house, like it's a lot easier to unplug and be involved in that experience. Mm. You know, it's a lot harder when you do things stateside and you got to show up for work on Monday, right? There's very less time to integrate and process what's happened. But in terms of that, knowing when you're ready, you know, doing your research, listening to podcasts like this, myself, Aubrey, Rogan, um, reading a bit about it. You know, the psychedelic explorers guide is a great book for people that are trying to get their feet wet in the shallow end, maybe not with Aya, but, but microdosing something like LSD or psilocybin. I think there's, there's great tips and tools. Uh, Dr. Jim Fadiman wrote that book. I think it's incredible. Um, you know, and then if you feel really called to that and you know, you have a reason to be there, you know, no matter what you're doing, whether it's a microdose or a macro, dose in the Amazon, it's having an intention, having a reason to go like, what, what stuff do I want to work on while I'm here? And you may not have any trauma to work through. It might just be, I need direction in life. I want to sort out what, what I'm going to do now, you know? And, and I think that, uh, I mean, certainly like, that was something I brought to the table after fighting. And then one of those answers was podcasting. Mm. It was health and wellness. It was being a part of something that makes me feel good and helps me live a little bit better each day than I did previously. 
do you think that uh like ever like if like i don't know just a person that has their life together got a good job family or you know everything's going real positive would someone like that benefit from taking you know an ayahuasca trip or something like that or is it just really like a certain demographic of people that it- no no doubt no doubt and i think that's important an important piece and that's something rick doblin who's the head of maps is working on with mdma therapy is that there's not i forget what it is uh how they're wording it to the fda but when this becomes um legal for assisted guided sessions you don't they don't want to have it only be for people with ptsd only be for people they want it to be for people who who are healthy of good conscious good mind good body who just want a different perspective and they want to be put through this and have the ability to level up in any way shape or form and that'll first be done with mdma i think they're estimating a 2022 that'll be completely legal throughout the u.s um supervised of course you know Mm -hmm. with the right right people but you know, with these other things, obviously you can go to the Amazon right now. It, it is just about, um, do you have a reason to be there and whatever your intention is and life can be fucking perfect. You don't have to come from, you know, uh, a horrific childhood or, and that wasn't me either. My, my childhood wasn't horrific. There was just, you know, I had some shit like, like mm-hmm. most people do, you know? And I think, um, you know, even outside of that, as I've worked through a lot of that, the downloads I get that are work related or, uh, direction related or family related, like how do I be a better fucking dad? I mean, that's 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 never going to not be at the forefront of what I'm working on. And at every stage of my children's lives, as they change and develop, uh, because I'm doing it for the first time, as we all are, as our parents were, you know, I'm going to have new things to tackle, new obstacles, and I'm going to need new perspective on that. And so having those tools periodically to work with, I think is it's incredible. It's made me a better dad. It's made me a better partner to my wife. And, um, I couldn't ask for much more when it comes to that. You're working on child number two. Yeah. Right. Heavily. Damn. Another (laughs) bear. I think it'll be a wolf. Oh, okay. What's, uh, what's the animals? So bear came to us in an eye vision. Um, (laughs) when we were dating, he was, uh, we, you know, they have closing circle at a lot of the ceremonies where they talk about, what you saw, what came up for you, what are the things you worked on? And Tosh started speaking about how she saw me holding a baby and she was holding the two of us. And I was like, hold on, I don't mean to interrupt, but I had the exact same vision. And uh, a month later when we were doing it again, we saw the same vision, but this time it was a boy and all the fear that I had of being a dad came up. I live in my mom's garage. I don't have family medical and dental. I don't have a 401k. I don't have a savings. I work in a titty bar, you name it. Everything came and it ballooned up and I could feel my heart racing like fuck. And it just felt icky and I took a deep breath and it kind of moved away from me. And I realized that's what everyone else tells you you need to have. Nobody, none of us would be here if you waited for the fucking perfect time to have a kid. It just wouldn't happen that way. Right. That's not the way it goes down in reality. So once that moved away from me, I realized like, okay, I can do this. And a month after that we were pregnant and bear the name came to us. Um, through really through a multitude of ceremonies, you know, my, my wife had experienced interacting with her father who's gone, um, as bears and I had had visions of bears and, um, I just felt that energy from him, which sounds fucking weird and woo woo, but that's what I felt, you know, and, and he certainly is bear. Um, he's very bear like I can attest to that. <laughs> I, I saw this little animal. He's it's, a beast. Yeah. And, and to get weirder, I've, I've talked to who will take our daughter's body 
and her name's going to be Wolf. So I'm pretty sure we're going to have a daughter next and uh, we'll give Bear a little wow. sister. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's, there's no doubt it's out there, but experiencing things firsthand, it paints a different lens, you know, and that's really what it is. It's not, it's funny because like Graham, Graham Hancock has been on Rogan's. I'm a huge fan of him, you know, and he'll often talk shit about guys like Richard Dawkins because Dawkins wants to paint it from the atheist point of view that anything that's happening in that ceremony and that drug interaction is within your own mind. And it's just a chemical interaction. And Graham says, fine, if you look, you can't die from this. There's no reason you shouldn't take it, but you don't get a seat at the table in the conversation of what ayahuasca is until you do it with me. You can't tell me what that experience is until you've experienced it for yourself. And that's one of the main takeaways that I see with plant medicine, but most people see with it is that when they do it, it feels like it's from outside of you. It doesn't feel like it's from within you. And even though what you're seeing oftentimes isn't something that is actually happening in the real world in air quotes, it's the realest experience you've ever had. And that to me is, is pretty amazing. You know, it is very real and it's very powerful and profound and whatever you're seeing, it's for you. It's so personal. You know, it's not like, uh, what's the fear and loathing in Las Vegas where it's like bats, bats everywhere. You know, it's like, no, like if I see a fucking bat or a dragon or anything, it's going to tell me something that pertains to me. And if I'm listening and I, and I'm paying attention, it's going to matter what it has to say to me. I think you told me one time that you were your mom, I think, uh, in one of the ceremonies. And another one, you told me that you were your wife. That was my very first ceremony. I became my wife and I relived every argument we had ever had up until that point. And it was fucking brutal. So I, was down, like, I had tits. I had the long curly hair God. and I was yelling. I remember <laughs> Damn, shaking my finger at Kyle. Tits. I was looking up, <laughs> yelling at Kyle and every word that came out of my mouth as Natasha was a way that Kyle could understand it. And as I snapped out of that, it was just fucking floodgates. I mean, I cried like a little girl. I was, I was done. I cried for a very long time. You're like, I'm a shitty husband. <laughs> I just, I realized before we were married, you know, I just realized like everything she was saying was with love. She wasn't being nagging. She wasn't trying to fucking prevent me from having fun. She was looking out for me. And uh, to this day, that's one of the most powerful ceremonies I've ever had. The second vision, that very first ceremony was, you know, it was while I was living in my mom's garage butting heads with her constantly as a 30 something year old, um, not seeing eye to eye on a lot of things, uh, not, a you know, being in a space of allowing everybody to walk their own path, like wanting her to take care of herself and not seeing her do that and judging her for it. Um, I became her when she was pregnant with me and I watched my belly grow in time-lapse very quickly. And as it was growing, I could feel her nervousness of being a mom for the first time. And as my, my father, her husband walked over and put his hands on the belly and kissed my belly, I could feel his love for Kyle, for his son radiate through the belly to Kyle Crazy. growing. And I could feel my mom's love and nervousness radiate into me while I was in the belly. And it was the most real thing I fucking ever experienced, you know? So like, it, was I my mom in that? No. But did I live it through her lens? For sure. No doubt. And it gave me the perspective to realize, like, no matter what, my mom loves me. I could be a fucking axe murderer in jail, uh, you know, without parole, and she would still love me. Mm. That's so much my mom loves me. You know, so to feel that as her is really powerful because it puts all that other noise to rest. 
Did you go there with the intention of working out stuff with your mom or did that just come to you? No, that just came up. And that's the other thing, you know, like my buddy Tate Fletcher, you know, he, he'll, I've done you know, a couple of mushroom ceremonies with him and he always laughs because he's like, yeah, you have your fucking intention, whatever. This shit's going to go wherever, which way you're not in control of it. You know, right. say what you fucking want. It doesn't matter. And there's some truth to that, you know, like it, it is going to go. Um, I do feel like these things are directable to a degree and then there's a level of surrender where you're not in control and you just got to fucking let go and go with it as with life, right? Like we can, we can choose what we want to work on and we can have focus points, but there's a lot of shit that's outside of our control. And the more accepting we are of what is the better off we are, you know? So I think having that, that kind of give and take of intention and surrender is really important, you know, but, but Tate, yeah, Tate often laughs at that. So no, that was not on my radar going into that (laughs) ceremony at all. I didn't know what to expect. It was more like, I'm here. I'm going to do the work and, um, you know, whatever you show me, I'm willing to see. And and that was to this day, one of the most powerful ceremonies I've ever had. I think last time I was in Austin and we were hanging out. Um, I don't think this was going on. I think this is a newer thing. Uh, the open marriage, that's a newer thing. And, and where did that, uh, where did that come? How long you've been married for, first of all, and then like where and when did that, uh, happen? We're coming up on four years now of marriage and we've been open since October last year. So not, you know, not super long. Um, the conversation started right when we got married. I told her, I was like, listen, if you ever, excuse me, if you ever want to have sex with another man, that's okay. Just tell me it's okay. Like we're going to be married hopefully until the day we die. And I realize they're, you may have interested, you know, be interested in someone else. Um, it's funny because all the psychedelic talk doesn't rub people the wrong way. This fucking definitely triggers people. <laughs> this fucking rubbles the feathers. But, um, you know, it's funny because like I thought I was being kind and saying that like, yo, you got a hall pass. Just keep me involved. Don't do it behind my back. And she was like, what the fuck? You wouldn't be mad. And she just blew up. Right. She's like, you wouldn't be fucking jealous. And I was like, no, I didn't say that. I just said, you know, I just want to know. I didn't say I wouldn't be jealous and I wouldn't have shit to work through. And, and, uh, that started the conversation. And then, you know, I read Chris Ryan's book, sex at dawn. And it's funny because when I bought it, I didn't know what it was about. I thought it was like, I knew he was in an open relationship. I'd heard him on Rogan's and I figured it was like a self-help, like how to fuck better, how to eat pussy better, that kind of thing. And so that's what I bought it for. And my wife read the reviews on Amazon. She's like, just smacked me in the fucking chest. Like, like uh, hardcore Holly, you know, just a fucking brutal backhand. Like, what the fuck? You want to have sex with other people? And I was like, no, no, no. She's like, what's up with the book? And I was like, I thought, what do you mean? What's up with the book? And she just read the review. And I was like, oh, man, I really didn't know that. But I'm going to read it. You're like, but. Yeah. And so I read it. And I was like, it's, it brings up a lot of good points. And I had her read it. And she's like, yeah, it brings up a lot of good points. But a lot of it has to do with, with tribal setting. You know, we don't live in that type of environment anymore. Shit's completely different, you know, and she was right. But that opened a doorway to a conversation. And obviously the conversation furthered uh, being around Aubrey, who has been in an open relationship for a while, um, seeing him kind of on the front lines, learning from his mistakes so we wouldn't make the same mistakes. And also, you know, in, in plant medicines, you know, like that that's come up for us at different points of time as a tool for growth. So why do you want to do this? Do you want to do it to fuck other people? That's, that's fair to say that. Like something my wife and I always had in common because we were friends before we got together and I was in a relationship. I mean, it does bring up a good question. Is there anyone who's married who, 
you know, doesn't have desires like that. Yeah. And right? that's, I that's mean, the whole thing. Like we, yes, that, there's probably a huge percentage, right? Yeah. And we were, we were in a place where we had, we had full disclosure as friends. We'd talk about all the relationships we'd been in. Uh, I knew people she had had sex with, you know, and I, I knew details about that sex and it never bothered me as friends. And so when we were together, that conversation didn't stop. Like all of, like, that's the thing that always makes me laugh is like anybody you're with, whether you're, you know, monogamous or not, if they're good or bad, that is a direct correlation to who they've been with prior to you. Right. It really is. So to have gratitude, like if, yeah, if your wife can suck good dick, she didn't learn it from you. Odds are she learned that from somebody else. It Four was, years of college. Hey. Trial and error with other people. Right. So do you have gratitude right. or does that gross you out? Right. right? Like Grateful. that's a good conversation. I know a lot of dudes that, that I know married men that will not take direction on eating pussy from their wives because it hurts their ego. You're, you don't like the way that I do it, honey. That hurts me. Now I don't want to do it anymore. You know, and I fucking swear to God, this is the case. And it's more than, it's more than a few. Right. So, so there's an issue there. Right. I think, um, and there's an issue with like, Hey, I know you've had sex before me, but I don't want to know about it. I don't want to hear about it. And it's like, no, like, why not have that conversation? You know? Um, and there's different ways to introduce the other, you know, like, uh, Esther Perel talks about that. You know, and that's they, some people watch porn while they have sex. Like you don't have to introduce a different person. Like you can just have right. role playing or you can have. It just can maybe TV. introduce a lot of truths and maybe you can talk about what you prefer and what you don't prefer just as you would with uh, how you would discuss how you like to be treated in general. Right. Yeah, like, yeah, I, I don't like when you do that. It's right? a conversation Period. that should be on the table. It's a conversation right. that should be had. And I'm not saying that the, the monogamy versus non-monogamy right. should be had. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that no matter which relationship you're in, yeah, talk about sex. Talk about the people you've been with. Talk about the things that you enjoy. Uh, talk about things you want to explore that you haven't tried before. Like all those things matter, you know. But I think as we learned about this more and more uh, and understood things differently in terms of love, like you think about your kids, this example that gets used often in these communities is do you love your second kid less than your first no. So do you have less love for a different partner? Do you have less love for your wife if you have a different partner? That's never been the case with the people I've talked to. Uh, polyamory, just to get the lingo down, literally translates to more than one love. So that's a different thing than being a swinger where you're just having sex outside of the marriage and it's all okay. It's all up on the up and maybe you have group sex with your wife included or your husband included. Um, that's a different thing. Polyamory is literally having a meaningful relationship with somebody outside of your main partner. And that comes with its own challenges, no doubt. And I understood all this on paper before we started, but fuck, I had no idea how hard the onboarding process would be. Going through that, I really have grown in ways that I didn't think possible. I've released a lot of jealousies. I'm still working on jealousies. I'm still working on things to this day, and I'll probably always have work. And I don't, you know, as with plant medicines, it sure as hell is not for everyone. But again, as with plant medicines, if this is something you choose to do in the comfort of your own home and it's not hurting anybody, it doesn't fucking matter. It yeah. shouldn't bother you. You know, like you may not agree with it, but, um, you know, some people really get triggered by that because we've all been force fed an idea of what love looks like mm. and what's appropriate. And 
you know, like this goes back to the thing we were talking about too. It's fucking Pride Month. Like a lot of people are triggered by homosexuals. <laughs> it's like, bro, who the fuck cares? Like, really, who the fuck cares? Yeah, what's it really doing to you? It does nothing, you know. And then no, I'm sorry to fucking. I'm sorry. Spoiler alert: They're not going to hell. <laughs> sorry, that it, that it doesn't work that way. That's not it. So, I don't think um, what people do in their own homes and even outside of that really matters if it's not hurting people, you know, and, and to that point, you know, it, it isn't for everyone, but you know, if you, that's a conversation to be had, if it's something that interests you or you have feel, you know, feelings around that, like maybe it's not with somebody you've been married to for 10 years and have this thing locked in the way that it is. But you know, if it's something that you're starting out with, or a lot of people who start open too. That's another thing. Another thing I should bring up is I have total gratitude for being monogamous with my wife for the first seven years of our relationship. I think we built a very solid foundation of trust and communication that we now can lean on when we experience challenges like open. And without that, I don't know that we would have survived it, you know? So I, what are the, what are the rules? Like, like, uh, (laughs) you know, somebody, uh, might be really, you know, upset if someone else goes through someone else's phone and like, you know, what, what we, is there, you know, it must be a whole different set of rules, right? Like who are you texting? Right. Like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> because we, because we've had other partners, like we know who we're texting with. And that's, I think one of the rules that we have is if we do want to build this as tribe, we need to have relationships with our, with our partner's partner. You know, I'm friends with my wife's boyfriend, good friends. And I want it to be that way. And as parents, that's the other thing. People always ask, what about the children? Um, as parents, I want to give to our children just as much, right, from our partners. Like our partners have to be on board with being a great auntie or a great uncle. And if they're good with kids, that's a prerequisite, right? If they're not, you're fucking out. You got no business being here. You got to be good with kids and you got to enjoy being around. And you got to be a part of the family. And he's amazing with bear. So with that, he's added value, not only to Natasha's life, but to my life and to bear's life. And, um, that's really, it's a really special thing to have that, you know? And really when I, when I boil it down and look at it, he's not taking anything away from me. He's only adding to my life. You know, even if Tosh spends the night at his house once or twice a week, he's only adding to my life. You know, and so I think another rule because we have kids is, you know, there's there's many different ways. I recommend people if they have an interest. Obviously, Sex at Dawn's a great book. Untrue if you're a female, great book by Wednesday Martin, who's a good buddy. Um, I was going to mention one more book, More Than Two: The Ethical Guide to Polyamory, is a great book on this. And they talk about all the different ways that you can model this because there's no one size fits all, and as with anything in life, right? And there's many ways to do it. Um, with that, they tell you the pitfalls and different things like that. But with having kids, if if I'm gone more than a night or two a week, I'm not dad mm. more than a night or two a week. That's an issue from our, for our children. Same with my wife, right? So those things have to be taken into consideration and it can't look like some other polyamorous relationships where maybe it's equally an equal split of time or you have more than one partner outside of your main partner, you know, and you have two nights a week with each of them or whatever the case is. Um, it can't look that way with kids. So, you know, really putting our children at the forefront of how we model this and who we bring into our lives, I think is, is really where we build that around that, you know, it is with them in mind. 
And I think having people that add value to their lives, it makes it all the, all the more worthwhile. Right. I think that people are always concerned about kids. They're always concerned about like how damaging it is, but there's a lot of people that are, uh, with people that they should probably no longer be with as well. You know, there's people that are like, you know, fighting and hiding things from each other. And there's a lot of secrets. And, you know, as you get older, you kind of find out there's kind of all these family secrets, you know, this happened with this uncle and this happened over here with this person. And you're like, Oh man, like I, <laughs> I know you know, cause you're a kid. You didn't know all these things were happening. And maybe just even just people just, uh, you know, I, I've talked before on this podcast, my wife and I have had many hard conversations before, like, and you have to, you have to figure out a way to get there. You got to figure out a way to talk about it. And it doesn't have to be uh, necessarily, uh, you know, fi- finding an, another person or anything like that. But you do have to communicate a lot. And you, it can't just always be about, you know, the dishes or the, or the uh, you know, taking the garbage out or those different things. It sometimes has to be a hard conversation that neither one of you wants to really go through. But if there's absolutely no fighting in a relationship, that, that could be problematic as, you know, fighting a lot, probably not great. Uh, couple, maybe a blowout here and there, probably probably a good thing. Cause maybe you uh, let some steam off, and maybe you communicate to that person what it is uh, that you want, because you're trying to be together forever, basically. Yeah, forever is a long time. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious how you, uh, because uh, I've had a discussion with this with my girlfriend, like, and we we both are not the greatest fans of it, just being honest. But how did you come to the? Guess you probably wrestled the idea that if she has a love or a deep love for someone else that she's with, how did, how did you wrestle with the idea that she might not love that person over time more than she potentially loves you? Or is that not even something that comes to mind? Oh no, that fucking for sure comes up. It for <laughs> sure comes up or the, uh, you know, like, like then there's that question too. Like if I allow this, will she leave me? Right. Will she find someone better? And ultimately you think of the reverse of that. If I don't allow it, she can't leave me. <laughs> Right. Well, what is that? That's possessive love, which is total bullshit. Total bullshit. Right. Like I don't, nobody possesses anybody, whether the fucking contract you signed on wedding day says so or not, it doesn't work that way. Right. Everybody can leave. Anybody can get a divorce. People can cheat. You can do it behind your back. Right. So it's, it's, it's a, it's the wrong idea to think like that can't happen if I don't allow it. It fucking most certainly can and does happen Mm. even if you don't allow it in air quotes. So, all right, I'm going to allow that. What happens then if she does find somebody better or somebody that she connects with more? Ultimately, it's my job to say yes to that. And if I truly love her to say, that's okay. Would it be fucking hard? Yeah. Would have some shit to work through if that happened? 100%. But if it did happen to say, that's okay and I love you anyways, you know, that's, that's the ultimate love. That is the love where you hold no record of wrong that is unconditional, right? To say like, I still love you anyways, and I'm still in support of you, and I'm still gonna show up as dad, and I'm still a part of this family. And even if you no longer wanna be with me physically, you know, I'm gonna remain in that love and remember all the reasons I love you, you know? And, let, and allow that, that type of flexibility, right? Now, when you actually look at it, somebody who would love you like that is not typically somebody that you're gonna leave. Even if you find an amazing partner outside, that amazing partner is amazing because they are them and they're amazing in their own unique, fucking beautiful human way. And it doesn't detract from all the ways that you're amazing. And one of the side effects that I found out firsthand, cause I was the first one to lead the way with a, a second partner was everything from the physical, from the sex 
to the emotional, to how we talk with one another and communication, it strengthened what I thought of my wife. It highlighted everything about Natasha because it had contrast now. I didn't take it for granted. It wasn't the same old song and dance. You talked about this once. I think it was Annie Golf, and I was like, yeah, you wouldn't eat the same food the rest of your life every day, but right. here we go. We're the same person every day for the rest of our life, right? right. Like, you eat pizza three <laughs> times a day for the rest of your life. It might be your favorite food. Eventually, you're going to be like, fuck, man, I need something else. <laughs> you know. But if you added in a bacon cheeseburger and then you ate that for a few days and then you circled back to pizza, you'd be like, oh, fucking pizza's great again. I fucking love, holy shit, how did I forget about pizza? Right? So, like, that's kind of the thing. Like, over time, things not not on her end per se but on my end like without realizing it i was okay with having sex a couple days a week i was okay with that you know and that's it's not something i'm proud of i just thought like oh this is 36 you know like i'm a dad now i got work i got other priorities and you know sex a couple days a week is fine will i have sex twice in the same day with my wife probably not that's probably you know early in relationship and then having something to compare and contrast that with in a positive way, not like who's better, just like something that's different. When I circle back to Tosh, it's like, oh my God, you're the goddess I signed up for. You're fucking our, all the things we've worked through, all the plant medicine ceremonies we've done, all the hard conversations. There's a level of mastery that we have with each other physically, mentally, and emotionally in the way we communicate, in the way we love one another, in the way we have sex with one another. You know, like, and I can push all her buttons physically in a way that only I know how because I have seven years of doing it. And same with her for me, right? And that gets highlighted with having the contrast. So that was a very interesting side effect that I was talking to Aubrey about. And he was like, yeah, man, it's, <laughs> yeah, he knew, he knew, you know, but you don't know that until you go through it. And that's not to say that can't be done in monogamy, but you have to get creative, you know? And I think that it doesn't necessarily mean like, pulling out leather and fucking plastics and, and shit like that and, you know, bring out the gimp. I don't mean any of that shit, but I mean like, yeah, maybe, maybe that is the case. Whatever the case is, you know, working towards being creative and not letting shit get stale. And that was something we had done that I didn't really realize. Like we had our favorite positions. We'd circle back to that 90% of the time. You know, it's like we're never trying anything new. And then, hey, there's another dude in the mix. Yeah, I'm going to mix it up. I'm not going to go to the same old song and dance. I'm going to be fucking you know, dry guy over in the, over in the corner, just doing the same song and dance every time we get together. Like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta treat it uh, like I would a new relationship. And that's really cool too, because I don't think there would have been a catalyst for me to want to fix a lot of the things that were wrong in our relationship. Maybe when you go out, like you wear your best clothes, shit like that, like like the little thing, like you wouldn't, yeah, you wouldn't you show, show up, up on the first date, like in the tank top probably. Yeah, no doubt. No right? doubt. I want, I want to, court her in a way that I haven't since like the first two years we were dating. And that's really cool. You know, it's, it's really cool to have that. It's really cool to, to take my wife on dates again. When for the longest time I said, we can't do that because of a, B and C, you know, <laughs> like, gosh, oh, it's too busy at work or we don't have enough money or whatever the case is. It's like, no, it's a fucking priority now. And yes, yeah, so you can do that in monogamous relationships. You don't have to go down this road to get there, but the pressure, um, from that puts a lot of pressure on the cracks, not only in our relationship, but in our own selves, you know, like my feeling of self-worthiness, my feeling of, am I valued or not by other people really was exposed through that, you know, and then, oh, this shit's coming up for me. Let me work on that. 
and knowing that whatever trigger comes up, it's not the other person, it's in me. So let me solve that and then circle back. And two, like we talked about with fighting, and I'm getting long-winded here, in fighting, there was this catalyst to learn more about how I could be better, how I could recover faster, all these things. Like in open relationship, there's a catalyst to how do I communicate better? How do I learn about what this is? What are the right ways and wrong ways to do it? So that that was the fire that lit under my ass to learn more about communication. So I read Nonviolent Communication. I think it's an amazing book, monogamous or not. Any relationship, nonviolent communication is amazing. Conscious Loving, another great book, monogamous or not, amazing. And then uh, More Than Two, if you are thinking about some form of polyamory, like that's, that's the book to read. It's a really good one. So all those came from the fires of open relationship, and I have gratitude for that too. You read a lot of books, man. Try. Yeah, you have like a book list somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. No, you should. Yes, sir. <laughs> that would help us a lot <laughs> <Yeah>. of people. <laughs> Make an Instagram post, for God's sakes. I don't I'd your really books. have to go through the library. Yeah, li- it's called a library, by the way. <laughs> library. Yeah. Library. Kingberry. Are you, uh, you know, there's always some concern, and it's easy for people to just say, I don't have any concern, but like some concern that people just think you're an asshole or might, like, you have a lot of great information to share. Do you think uh, this might kind of blunt that and might kind of put you in a different category and have people view you a different way? Like, are you, is there any concern about any of that? Yeah, many of the same can be said for plant medicines. If I'm talking about fasting and ketogenic diets and hot and cold therapy and butt anything, plugs. Yeah, oh, we're not supposed yeah, to talk about We're not talking about that yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if I'm talking about all these things and then you hear me talk about a vision that I've had and, and somebody's never experienced any sort of plant medicines or visionary experiences, it's going to seem pretty fucking far out there. I realize that. You know, does that discredit what I'm saying? No, that, that's, that's your opinion if it does, right? But try a cold bath and tell me if it works. It fucking works. Do Wim Hof breathing. Tell me if it works. It works. I know it does. And I know it because the people that have taught me it, there's science that backs it. But even besides that, like I said, feelings believing. You can feel it work. You can feel it move the bar and help you live a little bit better. That's not to say that starting an open relationship works for everyone. It certainly doesn't. And that's not to say ayahuasca works for everyone. That's why I try to give caveats to those things because they can be powerful tools, but they're, they really aren't for everyone. They're really difficult. And, um, and you know, you just, it may not be something that you're interested in and that's okay. But in that, in that facet, like if, if you're not down to do plant medicines, that's cool. But get in a flip tank, do some form of meditation, be, be comfortable in your own skin, have some reflection time. That's important for everyone. So there is something for everyone in terms of when you tackle these things of optimizing physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. I guess being a fighter too, you're used to being different, right? You're, you're kind of accustomed to being judged a certain way and you're, you're used to those kinds of things. So maybe this comes with some of the territory of trying some of the different things you're mentioning. Yeah. You know, and I mean, uh, fucking online is, is a great place for people <laughs> to troll you no matter what, you know, I mean, when I first got to on it, I was doing videos for them and uh, obviously they have a quite, quite a large following, much larger than mine. So it was my first real taste of like, <laughs> Oh shit, dude, people are coming out the woodwork here to talk shit yeah, about I get whatever get killed all the time. Out. Yeah. And it's like, all right, from that point of view, when I'm doing stuff for on it, like, yeah, you have to be a little PC. You can't, you can't maybe come out the, you know, you can't like, uh, what did Jay and Silent Bob strike back? Like, <laughs> fuck you, I'm coming to your house. You know, like that right. kind of shit. But I mean, on, on my own accounts, like most of the time I'll block people. And then other times I've given out my work address and I'm like, yo man, you can come see me on the mats. Like I'm good with it. Um, 
no response. Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> it's still none to date. Um, I think my whole point with any of these things that are a little out there is just that, and even you know, like I'm not gay. Um, at least I don't think so. Maybe not yet. You, you might try. You might change my mind, Mark. I've tried to but, tell myself but, that all the time. <laughs> I say it in the mirror five times a day. My my point is that it's not. Um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if somebody's into that. It's okay, right? So like, it's sh- it's not going to ruffle my feathers if some guy likes cock. It's not going to ruffle my feathers if a girl likes other other women. Like that doesn't. It shouldn't bother me, and it doesn't, right? So it shouldn't bother me if somebody's in a marriage and wants to explore open relationship. It shouldn't bother me if somebody wants to put a plant in their body and, and see if they can sort through some of their shit. Right. I think that's, that's the takeaway that I want people to have. Like, man, there's 90% of this. You might not say yes to whatever that 10% is. If you're still listening, (laughs) try that out and tell me how it works. You know, tell me how the cold bath is. Tell me how intermittent fasting works for you. And you could have the eight moon pies in your eight hours and, and see if you still lose weight, whatever the case is, you know, really, it's not, if there's something that's working for me, I got to share it and I can't silence myself because it's not cool with the masses. Mm. Right. And that's something Paul checked about people who blaze trails, take a lot of arrows in the back. Right. So I can't have fear around what the masses will think when I talk about things like this, sharing that and not withholding that information. Um, it's important to me and I don't need to give every detail. You know, Aubrey's big on giving a lot of details. Uh, Chris Ryan, not so much Wednesday, Martin, not so much. So just taking a page from both of them, where do I strike balance? You know, I don't need to tell the world every detail in my relationship. There's a lot of things that are just for us, right? There's a lot of visions that are just for me. Whatever the Oracle says to me, it is just for me. But there are some things I can share, you know, and I think that's important that I do that. Fucking awesome. Very cool. Anything else? Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, Back to the book thing, to be honest. Um, So you're all about like obviously lifelong learning, you know, not just going to college and stopping there, but continuing on. How often do you like, like how often, how many books do you maybe try and read a month? Do you have anything for that? Or are you just like what you're interested in? You just go towards that. Cause you've on this podcast, you mentioned probably over 13 or 14 books. <laughs> probably more. I mean, I, I, I'm a huge fan of audible, especially now with travel, you know, like on this road trip, I'm listening to audible. I'm listening to podcasts as well as I gear up for different, different people. Um, I mean, I probably, I, I had a goal that I started with when I was in fighting to finish one book a month and very quickly, especially with audible, I went to three or four, you know, and there's times too, where I take a break, like I feel full and no books calling to me. So going back to that calling, if I feel like I've got some shit to work on and maybe I want to implement some of the stuff that I've learned, mm. I might go through a period of not reading for, for two or three months. And then some shit will start to pile up on my desk and people like Aubrey or people, other Ben Greenfield, different people that I really respect to be like, man, you got to read Mark Manson's new book. Everything is fucked. A story of hope, which I just finished. And it's awesome. Right. So like shit like that, like, I'll, all right, man, I'll check that out. And then you get it on audible and you're like, oh, cool. It's a short book. It's only seven hours. Right. And then somebody has been telling me about mastery by Robert Green, and I, and I get that on Audible, and I'm like, 16 hours? <laughs> so for, for six months, I sat on that and didn't, didn't listen to fucking one minute of it. And then finally on this last trip, because I've been traveling so much out of the country, I started it, and it's amazing, right? I haven't finished it yet. How do you absorb some of this? Do you sometimes uh, make a note or something, like when you hear something, you know, that if really... If I'm listening on Audible, I'll take notes. And that's one of the things I've done with uh, one more book for people, is I will teach you to be rich 
by Ramit Sethi, who's yeah. uh, who was just on Tim Ferriss's podcast. So check him out there. I'm gonna have him on the show at the end of July. Fucking awesome. And I never, I mean, a lot of us that weren't taught how to do well with finances. And I'm an entrepreneur now. The podcast is in my name. I got to stand on my own two feet with sponsorship and things like that. And in a lot of ways, it applies to what I'm doing uh, right now. But it applies to a lot of people, whether you have an LLC or whether you work for a company, it doesn't matter. Like there's ways you can optimize your spending and optimize. The cool thing about money is it always applies to everything. Same with the training that we do. They all kind of they work together. Yeah, no doubt. So I listened to that book. I mean, I have a physical copy, but quite a bit of it I've listened to on Audible and I just have notes. You know, that's something I don't journal. I don't write because I have shitty handwriting and it's hard for me to reread it even a day later. It's really hard and I have to fucking really try to remember what I was what I was saying. So I just type in notes on my iPhone. And if I get a, a really long notes, I'll just print it. I'll email it to myself and print it and out it comes. It doesn't, it's not fancy. It's not double space and all this shit. And there's typos here and there, but it, um, it's a great way for me to take notes without highlighting. So, you know, I learned auditorily in college very well. And if I was reading something and had to highlight and try to regurgitate that, I wouldn't do very well with it. But if I had a great teacher who was a good lecturer, I would listen and take notes while they were talking and I could fucking, I could regurgitate all of that come test day. I knew exactly what they were talking about and when, because I could hear it in my head as I was reading the question in the test. So now I listen to Audible and I take notes on my iPhone and I'll print them out here and there and review them. And that's a great way for me to digest and really process the information I'm getting. Have you ever had an IQ test before? Uh, I think I did when I was really young. My first, uh, I had my first therapist when I was seven, my parents sent me to <laughs> Dr. Kenneth Perlmutter because I was getting a lot of fights at school. And um, we did an IQ test. I don't remember what it was. It was good. It wasn't, I don't remember the number. Wasn't, yeah, it was good. It was good. No, I don't, it wasn't I don't astronomical. Know what it was. I don't think I don't, it definitely wasn't astronomical. Yeah. All right, we got to head out of here because we got to go eat. We got to get some grub, brother. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Good luck with uh, baby number two, Wolf. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wolf might be on the way. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Whether it's a boy or a girl. Strength is never a weakness. Weakness is never strength. Catch you guys later. <laughs>